I think that your mind and your brain is a muscle in itself, right? And if you're not kind of stressing your brain or challenging your brain, then it, you know, it'll, it'll start to just start to fade away. Right. And, and so, um, which is, you know, it's interesting. There's been some studies done about like people who just like they retire and they don't do anything and end up basically dying or getting sick or unhealthy faster because they're just literally not challenging themselves in any way. The Growing the Future podcast is brought to you by Aberhart Egg Solutions. Join us as we talk to top entrepreneurs about their methods of obtaining success in their endeavors. And now, your host, Dan Aberhart. <laughs> the ladies of foam like Saskatchewan. Well, at be, least your yeah. Well, at least your mom and your aunts and your cousins. Is this better? Yeah, it looks good. I, maybe if we could center you a little bit more. We'll just. Um, well, I'm, I'm worried about this kind of light. I can move around. What do you think, Alyssa? It doesn't. I don't know if the light's a bad thing. I kind of have a glare, to be honest. Yeah. You can just maybe close that curtain in the back a little, like the white thing. Yeah, these these curtains are per- terrible. It they're just takes as, a bit of, bit of the edge off. They're about as useful as about 24 foot flexi coil. <laughs> hey man shouldn't be knocking uh small width producers here we gotta are we recording right now yeah but we it, it, we'll be editing a good deal of it out but okay actually we'll be editing like that, that's actually perfect we probably won't have to edit anything out unless there's for some reason there's something that we're not we're not crazy about but uh yeah what are the ground rules here so i'm aware <laughs> Well, we're sort of making them up as we go, and I think it's going to be really easy. I was I was uh, trying to figure out how to prepare for this podcast, and uh, typically, it's I call it creative procrastination because I just I was really struggling with what you know what I mean. I was thinking, here's a guy who knows so much about so many things. I could pick your brains on so many topics. I mean, the list of this guy's going to blow your mind. Your head will be hurting for the rest of the day. But as far as notes and stuff go, the only thing I could really come up with, and I see this is inverted, but it says China. <laughs> and me and Alyssa were saying, okay, we're going to ask him about China. <laughs> right. That's all I got. But um, as far as ground rules go, you know, I think it's a pretty ended, open-ended up uh, conversation, open-ended conversation. Um, pretty, I mean, I, I guess the things that I'm interested in talking about today, we'll get to it, but I'm interested in talking about you and your business and your people and how you've grown that. Um, as far as like timely market predictions and stuff go, um, I'd love you if you gave it some that when we release in, in, in May, we can test the veracity, the, the accuracy. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, we, can, we, can, we can say now, when this is actually published, you can call me out if I'm right or wrong. Wouldn't that be something in May? Well, the thing is, like, people will probably—they won't call me out if I'm right, probably. <laughs> but if I'm wrong, they'll let me know about it. That's for sure. You won't get those messages that say, uh, "Brennan, thanks to you, me and my family are enjoying a, a very nice addition to our home because of your May call on on canola." No, but I know a few yellow peas. A couple of years ago, I know a few people who. Uh, built new cabins thanks to some calls wow hopefully they invited you over for a scotch i think i got like a coors light maybe coors, light bank- coors banquet 
I help yourself. They're in the fridge. That's both the good stuff. <laughs> the beer that you helped me buy is over there. Help yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. Do we have any ground rules, Alyssa? I don't know, like swearing or something like that. Well, you can swear. If, if, if you think it's appropriate for you and your people to swear for whatever impetus, um, I can put a censor over it. Um, I don't think we'd actually air it, but we would know that you had sworn something. I mean, I've, I've said a few conferences in my <laughs> presentations, and people are like, well, we swore. And I'm like, tell the, or- <laughs> tell the organizers. <laughs> I dare you. Well, it's your brand, and I think things are a lot more liberal these days. But I know from my Toastmasters days, when you sometimes when you swear, I think the challenge is that it, it can detract from, from what you're saying. And Yeah, no, for sure. Some people can find it minutely offensive and, and maybe lose track of the very important things that you're talking about. But uh, as much as I've tried to have structure, like my, me and my brother have talked about it quite a bit. Oh, we should have some sort of structure, some format or agenda or some things that we do every time. I was thinking of having like lightning rounds and I wanted to have like big buttons like the mad yeah. money. Guys. You know, yeah. bull, bull, you know, sell, sell, sell. But uh, I don't know. I, I think the cool thing about long format podcasts is the opportunity just to have a really authentic conversation without any boundaries and sort of let it go wherever you want to. That's the cool part that I'm enjoying. Works for me. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to have you on because I, I do think that um, you're an excellent speaker. Um, Thank you. And you're a very informed guy and there's lots of things I wanted to pick your brain about today. And I'm really interested where the conversation is going to go. So, um, I think Brennan, it'd be great if you could just tell me and tell Alyssa a little bit about yourself and your entrepreneurial journey and um, how you got to where you are today, I guess, is what we'll open with uh, just who you are, your companies and and what's been going on for you in life thus far. Uh, So my name is Brennan Turner. I'm the CEO and co-founder of FarmLead. I'm originally from uh, small town Foam Lake, Saskatchewan, also known if you drive by the town, it's it's also known as the uh, best place in the world to live. It's got a sign that says so. Um, that's another story. What's the criteria for that? Well, I mean, okay, here we go. We're into the weeds now. But uh, <laughs> basically, in 1999, the OECD, OECD did a, a study on where was the best place in the world to live, and Canada won or got the, you know, whatever, all the, met the best, got the best criteria. So they were number one. And then therein, uh, CBC did a, a, a poll of what's the best place in Canada to live and Saskatchewan got the most votes. So then CBC Saskatchewan did a, a poll of what's the best place in Saskatchewan to live and Foam Lake got the most votes. So in so facto, Foam Lake would be the best place in the world to live. I feel validated with all those taxpayers' dollars going to CBC. Finally, some good in the world. I'm glad. I mean, know. 20 years ago, 20 years ago. So, you know, maybe some, 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 uh, requirements or how they've measured, you know, best place in the world to live has changed. But, uh, is there an award for the best person from foam Lake? Like, is there another layer to this? There should be, there should be. Uh, I know some people who are, are pretty highly qualified to maybe, to maybe earn that title. We'll get them a sash or like a crown or something. (laughs) I think it'd be pretty, the best person. Uh, exactly. in the world and the best yeah literally the best place person in the world that would be living in the best would. place of the world well i just got back from jamaica and the resort was amazing but um 
I'm telling you, in terms of the country, I flew back up the eastern seaboard, and I was so happy to see all those little twinkling lights of civilization, my friend. Oh, man. <laughs> Fulham Lake, climate-wise, is not exactly paradise. But in terms of the metrics of living, we should all be so thankful to be here, brother. And even better if we can, you know, uh, become part of the United States here shortly, which I see is sort of a movement. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I think. I think we'll probably have some. Some maybe different politicians help you know running Canada soon. But um, we let's not get into the politics. Teflon angle. Trudeau. Teflon Trudeau. Yeah, we got so many uh, rabbit trails here. We're, but so okay. You're from Foam Lake. <laughs> we got that far. We're, I'm from Foam Lake, um, and uh, you know, family has been been farming between there and where my dad's hometown is Kyle, Saskatchewan, for for you know, basically a hundred years. Um, depending on which side of the family you go down, um, before that in Europe and, um, basically, I mean, Europe. Been, yeah, well, so, in Europe. so in, in Scotland specifically, and then if, if, it, if you watch the movie, Dr. Shivago, which is, uh, unbiased, but basically the best movie of all time, uh, the, the, the kind of my, my family immigrated from what is technically Northern Germany to what is now, uh, kind of Ukrainian Russian border area. And started farming, and then in 1917, you saw the Bolshevik Revolution happen, and so um, what's yours is mine now. And they were kind of uh, well off, pretty well off farmers at that point. And so, with the the rise of communism and and kind of the fall of you know the individual effort being rewarded, um, they decided after World War II to, to immigrate to Canada. So that was specifically my mom's side. And so, first settled in uh, Dunder and Saskatchewan, where there was a lot of other Mennonites. And then eventually moved over to Foam Lake. And uh, my grandfather, Peter Pankratz, was the mayor of Foam Lake for a number of years. Um, and, and the families continued to expand and you know, married into other families, uh, namely in Frontier, Saskatchewan. I've got some, some cousins down in, in just outside Fargo, North Dakota. So all in between first cousins, aunts, uncles, there's about 50,000 acres of production in Saskatchewan. And if I count the family... Down in North Dakota, there's about another 16,000, 17,000 that gets seeded. So and we have, and it's all, you know, technically, yeah, now through corporations for tax purposes, but it's all run by the, the different family members. And, you know, we, I'm, I'm involved to, to varying lengths in terms of thinking about grain markets and grain marketing. And um, technically, though, hockey was, was kind of my first passion in life, um, was able to, um, uh, play for the Notre Dame Hounds in Wilcox, Saskatchewan, the Athlamary College of Notre Dame, and and uh, you know some other some other f- famous Saskatchewanians have come out of there, like of Pat Ellenuk and and uh, um, wait, I actually don't know if Pat Ellenuk went there. He's from Foam Lake, though. That's why I said that. Um, but Wendell Clark, you know, you've got Braden Coburn, uh, Jordan Eberle, you know, a bunch of not only Saskatchewan hockey players, but over three, I think there are three hundred twenty-five NHLers that have that have come out of Notre Dame. And, um, I was fortunate enough to get drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks. It was a lot slimmer then, but, um, the, <laughs> uh, uh, self, you're still looking really good, man. You still look really good. You know what, you know what, you know, look, it, it's, it's my attitude is look good, feel good, play great. And, uh, you, you know, you just, you gotta, you gotta keep rolling with that. So played hockey at Notre Dame and then, uh, was fortunate enough bus to go down to Yale university on a scholarship. And, uh, I'm a big nerd. So, um, went there, but, but ended up dropping out after my third year, 
uh, like an idiot. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I promised my mom I'd get my degree and I, I signed with the Chicago Blackhawks and it took me a couple summers to get my degree in economics, but it happened and, and worked on Wall Street and commodity trade, um, kind of in that time frame. But played four years of professional hockey and uh, within within Chicago and then Ottawa Senator Systems, and uh, was fortunate enough to to be on the team that won the uh, Calder Cup, the AHL Championship in 2011. So that was pretty cool. And then played one year overseas in, in Europe in the finishing my career technically in 2012. And that's when you know, the whole, the conversation about the WIPO were going away and, and whatnot happened. And given my experience on wall street and, and just, you know, continued passion about being around the farm, um, decided that, uh, I was going to come, come home and, you know, kind of kick the can down the road on the wall street opportunity and, and maybe, uh, look to, do something around grain marketing, grain markets, um, and, and try to bring cash grain trade a little bit more digital. Um, and so, I mean, you think about it, 2012 is like you know, seven years ago now, basically. Um, eight years, I guess, if you kind of do the math properly, uh, if you count 2012 and through to 2019 today. But long story short, um, started out in some of the grain marketing and you know, helping a little bit of the family and then um, started building some software. I, uh, I was, I taught myself how to write HTML5 code, um, and built up kind of the, the web version and the app version through, uh, I guess it would have been like late 2013. And we officially launched in, in late 2014. Um, but, uh, yeah, so been fully operational for about four and a half years now. And, um, uh, using the farm lead marketplace. That's our product today. Um, we, we have a, uh, it, it, it is, you know, North America's grain marketplace just on the basis that we are the largest. We have, uh, now over 13% of all, uh, the farmers behind 13% of all North American grain, oil, seed and pulse crop production. And on the flip side, we have about 9% of total demand. So, um, you know, the buyers across, uh, various, various companies, various regions who are, are looking for grain, uh, to buy because really, I mean, cash grain trade, it's, it's a, it's a linear text message or phone call relationship. And, um, there's really three stages of, of grain trade. The first is prospecting who's got grain for sale, who's willing to buy at what price. Then you have the negotiation. You have to go back and forth a little bit. And then the actual execution piece in terms of contracts and delivering the grain and getting paid for it. So what we do at farm lead is our, our mission is to make cash grain trade easier and, um, expand or, or if you will, democratize the selling and buying opportunities in that, in that ecosystem. Um, so by, by bringing all the buyers and sellers to one convenient location, we've been able to help farmers, um, you know, find a little bit more money than maybe what the local option is sometimes. Um, and on the flip side, we've helped buyers kind of meet, uh, or, or fill the, the gaps that they don't have. So you know, knowing that we've, what we've done for the last, um, four and a half years, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, you know, we've had some, obviously some success. Technically we've raised over $10 million us to help kind of, uh, uh, grow the business. Uh, we've raised from venture capitalists in the U S and Canada as well as some friends and family. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're now going down the road of, of uh, launching a new product. Um, so by the time this podcast is aired, 
Uh, it's called Combine. And uh, it's kind of a much more open environment, more of a, a kind of a social interaction of, of how a farmer manages uh, his or her grain buying network. And on the flip side, how a buyer is able to prospect and negotiate better just because they're not kind of calling or texting blindly to the people um, who may or may not have grain for sale at the, a, a price that's kind of within that buyer's price point. So uh, long story short, I like hockey. I love agriculture. And um, I'm, not, I'm from a town not too far away from, from where you guys are. Did you meet Gordon Gecko when you were at Wall when Wall Street? Never met Gordon Gecko, but it's great, great movie, in my opinion. <laughs> and I'm not gonna lie, it's it's pretty, it's pretty I'll say it's pretty accurate in terms of not only how it used to be run, but even if you saw Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, or or um what's the other one? The Wolf of Wall Street. You know, there there's there's a lot of uh <laughs> it's pretty intense, high flying, a <laughs> lot of money. Um and, and to be honest, like living in New York and whatnot, like, yeah, I can, I can wear that hat. It's required, but it's just kind of not who I am. I guess I was just brought up differently and, you know, walking down the street in New York city and people run into you and it's like, you ran into me. Why, like, why do you want to fight? Like relax here, just <laughs> say good morning and move on your way. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you could say that the, you know, the building I lived in in New York city, there was, there was more people that lived in that building than my entire hometown. So, um, kind of wanted to move away from that. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> I'm not personally a big hockey guy, but one of the things that I'm envious of people that have been involved in sports, uh, especially at some of the levels you must have played at, it must translate into some wicked business moves. I mean, you take what you learned on the ice and in, in the locker room and um, and off the ice, being involved in professional sports. It must have taught you how to play the game in business. Uh, yes, yes and no. Uh, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to it. I'll admit. Um, so I think, I think the, the, the first thing, the thing that I've always learned, or I guess maybe brought with me is, is work ethic and discipline. Um, in terms, and, and when I say discipline, I, I kind of, I guess you could say more focus on, on, on a word of, of, of just focus, you know, being, being resilient on that specific topic that you have to take care of or, or whatnot. So, um, or subject or whatever your, the job that you're doing. And I think that actually translates more from the farm. Um, you know, both, both my parents, um, you know, multi-generation and, uh, coming from the farm and kind of the attitude that you work harder than you get paid. And then you, you kind of eventually get paid. Um, and so I, I guess that's been handed down and, um, you know, I can remember from an early age, um, doing various chores around the farm for the, from my uncles and, and then, you know, going into hockey, it's, you know, I was never the, the most skilled player. And I'm sure there's lots of people out there who will remind me of that. Um, but I just, I tried to work harder than everyone. And, and um, to be honest, going to Notre Dame afforded me the opportunity to literally do what I wanted in terms of like, hey, you want to go work out? Let's go work out. Uh, you want to get on the ice at 7 a.m.? You're allowed to get on the ice at 7 a.m. by yourself. Um, and, and they just provided the environment to, to succeed. But, you know, what I've learned, I think is that you're the one that is really in charge of it. And and kind of, there's that that great saying that luck is really just when preparedness meets opportunity and, and being prepared as much as possible, I think has, has put me in some call it lucky situations. Um, and, and being able to, to capture those moments and, 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 you know, kind of use that as a platform to the next 
you know, goal, whether it be a personal or professional level. Now on the flip side, in, in whether it's in farming or it's in hockey or in wall street, things can be pretty intense, right? You know, there's a lot of, you're screwing up on the farm or you broke something. Um, or, or, uh, in the hockey locker room, somebody's yelling at you or, you know, you're yelling at each other on the ice, whatnot. And then, you know, in, 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 in New York and wall street, it can, you know, it can be fairly intense in terms of expectations and whatnot. So I'll say that moving over into a, as, as a CEO of a ag tech startup, um, or company now, as I prefer to call us since we've been around for a few years, um, the re- the reality is that you're dealing with a, now with you know people who are not used to that sort of intensity. They're you know they're not from that locker room or or a trading floor or farm environment, and and so I've had to um, you know being a, as big as a guy as I, I I am, and even you know a couple of years ago was or have I've always been basically been this size since I was about seven. Um, the point is that. I have to be very cautious of my tone and my demeanor and my body language because, you know, when, when, a, when you're, you're six foot three, 260 plus pound CEO is talking to a five foot four, 125 pound developer, you know, you know, and if, if, if I appear intimidating, how aggressively will that person want to go hard and work hard and, and stay focused for, you know, the project that we're trying to, to achieve or the outcome that we're trying to achieve. So, you know, I've, I've learned over time that, um, it's really important to more so be a listener, I would say, um, and, and be able to digest the other person's you know concerns or whatever they're talking about, and then be able to suggest or ask questions with perspective um, and that's kind of been become my, my mantra, listen, digest and suggest with perspective. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's just taken some time, I would say a couple years worth. And unfortunately a couple, couple bad experiences, uh, to learn that, but with everything, I mean, you, you, you choose to either elevate your game and learn from those experiences or you continue to ignore them. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of feedback and, um, you know, we have a, a great culture here at farm lead. And, and I think that's a function of, of, of letting people kind of own it, giving them their own voice. Um, and in, in times of where there is kind of angst or, or frustration, like you would see in a farm or a hockey rink or wall street training room, you know, just basically opening the floor and saying like, let's deal with this as adults and, and be calm and collective and like, let's work through this and figure out where, where the middle ground is to solve the, the problem and move forward from it. CEO tip number one, glean from the Brennan Turner uh, Growing the Future podcast. Don't physically intimidate your staff. Um, HR organizations are cheering worldwide. <laughs> this is the internet. Also internally. 50 years ago, 50 years ago uh, you could maybe physically intimidate your staff, but, uh, but no longer. But that's one of the things I always, like whenever I think of you, uh, the association that I make is, um, my understanding is you get up super early every day. And, and yeah. write a newsletter and you're talking about discipline and consistency. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think well, one starting out, we call it, we call it the farm lead breakfast brief. It's free. Um, right now I'm only writing it about three to four times a week. Um, you know, just as the company's evolved, you know, time has become a little bit more 
I would say short, it seems, I get it. Yeah. Um, but also trying to find a, a happy blend of, of kind of personal time and, and family time and, um, work time. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm super productive in the morning. I've always been a morning kid. My mom will tell you that, um, you know, age of four or five getting up and she taught me how to basically turn on the TV, but put the volume on low so I could watch the TSN highlights in the morning. Um, and you know, this is at five o'clock and she's just like painful. She will, she'll tell the story of how painful it was to, to literally teach me over time, how to turn the TV on and pour myself my own cereal and, and put some milk in it. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I've always been a morning person, I guess. The purpose of, the, of writing the Farmly Breakfast Brief was to try to bring some credibility to what we were trying to do. Um, you, know, you don't see too many grain market analysts that have uh, their, their hair and or not white hair, it seems. You have um, great hair. You have yeah, great hair. It's great hair. Know, look, good, feel good, look good, feel good, play great. Like even relative to everybody we've had on the podcast, so for, like three other guys, you think of Corey Milnes, Terry Eberhardt, and uh, Jeff Bennett. I mean, this guy is right up there with. We got lots of guys with great hair on this podcast so far. You know, it must must. What is this sponsored by Vidal Sassoon, or what do you what do you guys got? Pert herbal essences. Pert Plus. Pert. We're monetizing Plus. Isn't Head and Shoulders like the big hockey uh, <laughs> one? I think. I can't remember. Anyways, yeah. Um, so yeah, start the family breakfast brief because um, we we needed some credibility. I felt and 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 ultimately um, wanted, you know, there, that was kind of my expertise and understanding what was happening in gray markets. And again, it, 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 it culminated or combined with, um, what I, what I had a passion for in terms of the family's farm and everything that I was doing had a, you know, a direct impact on, on how, or what I was reading and, and what was going on in the markets had a direct impact to my extended family's bottom line. Right. And so, um, I, I felt that the way that I wanted to talk about grain markets was so that it was very simple to understand. And, and a lot of um, what I was reading at the time and still today, you know, there's a, a lot of you know, these technical factors and this and this factor and whatnot. And, and I just said, if I, if I literally asked my family members, young or old, you know, can you explain this to me in, in kind of common language or vernacular that you would understand? They can't do it. And so, I've really tried to pride myself on, on, on getting behind just what the headlines are and what does this really mean? What is, what is the implication of, of you know, we'll use present day conversations or, or topics, the U S trade war with China. Um, again, we're, we're talking here in, you know, middle of March, but if you see a, a trade war compromise found before seeding starts in, in, uh, in April, May, the point is that there's going to be probably a lot more soybeans planted than one stock, which means that there's going to be less wheat acres planted in the likes of Minnesota, North Dakota, and some of those other fringe um, um, states. So that basically means that um, it's it would be bullish for wheat uh, if a U.S. trade U.S. China trade war compromise or deal is found, uh, and probably bearish if it's not found before planting. And and these are the things that. I think for the most part, people don't, you know, they see the headline and, and they don't really think of the ramifications. You know, they might think about it in the media, like what, what happens in the next month or two, but what happens six months from now? What happens 12 months from now? Uh, what happens 18 months from now, 24 months from now. Right. And, and it's those, those kind of 
um, being being cautious uh, or conscious of the short term implications, but also the long term effects of of different changes within the market structure um, that I really try to educate. And the other thing is, you know, people are like, oh, you don't talk about the canola market today. Or you didn't talk about the corn market. One, it's free. If you don't like it, don't read it. Um, I really don't care. We've got like 50,000 subscribers to it at this point all Are around we? the world. 50,000? Yeah, five zero. So um, it's, 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 um, and it, and it completely organic. I mean, yeah, we've shared on social media and stuff, but we don't like promote it. Like we don't do Facebook ads or anything like that. It's just, it's people find it on their own. Um, and again, I've been writing it basically since 2012, 13, I guess it would be. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, the the big thing is if, 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 you know, I'm not writing about your specific crops that affect your farm today, it's a good chance that I will probably, I ha- I wrote it about it in the past, in the previous one, or I'll write it about it in the next one. Um, but I just, I don't think it's worthwhile to mention corn prices moved half a cent today or soybean prices went up one cent. Like that's, that's really irrelevant. What are, what are the actual things that are happening to the market and why? Right. What is the move that, what is the thing that's going to push corn prices up 10 cents or 20 cents or soybean prices down 50 cents or canola prices down 25 bucks a ton? Like we've seen the last couple of weeks, again, talking here in the middle of March. But, um, you know, I think simplifying it, you know, the, the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid, has always resonated with me. And that's the kind of the way that I've, I've always tried to educate people about the grain markets. Absolutely. I love that, Brennan. Break it down for me. Talk to me like I'm five years old, because that's about my cognitive uh, you know, understanding of, of the markets on some levels. But how do you how do you see the function of the markets um, versus how producers see it? And you're an extent your companies and you are essentially an extension of the functioning of the markets. How do you really view the markets on a macro scale here? Yeah, so that's a pretty big question. Um, right, but I know you can take this. I know you can you got this, man. You got this. So, so, so if, if I break out, um, I mean, you, you have kind of really two markets, right? You have the, the first, the first market is the paper market and that's what everyone points to. They look at what's happening on the futures board, um, as an indication of really what's happening internationally or nationally, right? So whether it's canola futures or corn futures in Chicago, it's kind of an indication of what's really pushing the market one way or the other. And that's, I mean, you, you have external players in those markets, right? You have funds, hedge funds, fund managers, speculators, and, and they don't really have a place in, in the market other than being a participant and, and they provide liquidity. Uh, but unfortunately, that creates um, really aggressive moves to the upside and downside, especially when there's a lot of, there's maybe not a lot of headlines and, and volatility becomes um, you know, a main component of, of how the market operates. And then you have the local market. Right. This is this is uh, kind of a function of, of what the local supply and demand factors are. Right. If if one of the crushed plants in York and Saskatchewan goes idle for a few months, well, what do you think is going to happen to to basis? Right. Um, you know, canola prices, net cash, are going to go lower because there's just not as much demand anymore. Um, and and so the the thing that I think about in terms of marrying it up with the second piece of your question of how do farmers think about it? Farmers think. You know, I think there's two two areas that that one farmers need to focus on. One is their cash flow, and and specifically as it relates to their cost of production. Are you just a yield farmer, or are you a, a return on investment farmer? Are you a profitable 
farmer. Um, cause a lot of people like to brag about, Oh, I got 80, 90, hundred bushels an acre wheat. Um, but if I ask them, you know, what was your, what, what was your profit on that per bushel? No one can answer. Uh, very, very few people that I talk to can answer me that question very you know, succinctly and, and definitively, you know, I made 22% profit on, on that bushel or not. Right. Um, and so you have, you have that component, but then you, and the, the cash flow, uh, cost of production component, but then you also have the seasonality, um, and, and, um, thinking, I, I don't think that for the most part, and I'm, I'm getting a shot here for this, but, um, we love controversy of, here at growing the future I, podcast. We love controversy. Well, you know, I, you know, I, to be honest, I'm not afraid to call people out. Like we in the agricultural industry tend to be very short-term thinkers, and, or we have very short term memories and, and, you know, from, from a, uh, psychological component, we call this recency bias, right? Where, where what happened, uh, three, four months ago is really influencing how we're thinking about, we, you know, our, our sales or our, our, our grain marketing over the next two to three to four months. And, and that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it kind of brings me to the, the third point, which is, uh, for specifically on the farmer side, marrying up how the markets work versus versus how a farmer thinks about it, is is um, thinking about loss aversion, and so this is the feeling of um, basically if 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 uh, if the market's at one price, right? Let's say let's say you know wheat's at seven dollars a bushel, right? Um, and I don't sell anything at that price, but uh, the market goes down. That's a, pr- I have a bad feeling, right? It doesn't feel good when that happens, when I didn't do anything versus if the market's at $7 a bushel and I sold, let's just say 10% of my production of wheat at that $7 a bushel. And then the market goes higher, right? You kind of feel crappy that you sold maybe too early, but the point is you have more grain available for sale. And so the feeling of doing that versus doing nothing in the market, pulling back, which feeling is worse? It's the latter. It's when the market goes down and you haven't done anything and you're kicking yourself and saying, ah, you know, I wish I could have done something. I wish I did something here. And so between recency bias and, and, um, the, the, the kind of the, the minimal thinking associated with loss aversion, um, farmers, I, I, I say for the most part, generally speaking, there's a lot of very, very good grain marketers uh, in that I know personally, but also across, across North America and I mean, more generally the world, but they tend to be thinking kind of more short term and not necessarily always thinking about cash flow. And they tend to be hoping that the price is going to go up versus selling into that strength and, and not necessarily saying, I know exactly when the high is going to come, but I have a good idea that, you know, we're getting close to it and maybe I should start selling a little bit more so that I don't have you know the 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 loss aversion of shoot I should have done something and I didn't and now I I need I I'm selling in a panic essentially. Isn't that, that the impetus a, for having a coach? I think so, and and I and I'm I'm a big advocate of having outsiders again that 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 open feedback culture sort of thing, right? Just admitting you don't know everything. Uh, you know, if if I'm not the expert in something, I try to go find that expert and. And, and learn from them as much as possible. And, and while I may never become an expert, I can certainly be better at that specific function, whether it's, again, coding or grain marketing or podcasts or whoever it might be, being a CEO, being a leader, not just for a company, but you know society in general, 
um, who are the people that I can learn from. Um, so any, any opportunity that you have to bring on an expert, um, I'm a big fan of that. Talk to me then, like let's build this out a little bit from the functioning of the markets to where is Canada in reality in the global market with grain? And I'm sure like, there's lots of little you know, rabbit holes we could talk about. Where is Canada in the global marketplace versus our perception of where we are? Well, I think, I think the first um, kind of ugly duckling to talk about is the fact that we are actually a high cost producer in Canada. It doesn't necessarily feel like it. Cause again, we, we are focused on, on where we sit now. We're not necessarily always the highest cost producer. Um, but in relative terms to some of our competitors, say in Western Australia or in the black sea countries, uh, we're a high cost producer. And, and as we've seen some of those different countries start to come into some of the crops that we grow, we're talking about Durham, peas, lentils. I'm, I'm looking at countries like Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Russia. Um, the fact is that if in a, in a globalized industry that we live in, in terms of, in terms of commoditized grain trade, um, we are one of the higher cost producers in a lot of those, those functions. And this is again, where it comes back to um, thinking about, do I need to be a yield farmer or do I need to be an ROI farmer? Right. Um, and, and in terms of what is the longevity and the sustainability and potentially the, the successional opportunities of my farm, um, am I thinking about that, that five, 10, 15 years? And I mean, there's a lot of analogies that I can go into why it's important to think about soil health now, but I'll digress. My, I'm not the agronomist in the family. One of my cousins leads that for Cargill and, and, um, uh, Janina Kura, quick shout out. She's awesome. Um, awesome. but the, 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 the point here is that we, we are indeed one of the higher cost producers in, in Western Canada. Now, the flip side is that we are actually the, one of the best producers of food, generally speaking, right? We, you know, the, in terms of the, in terms of the, the safety nets and the, and the safety valves and, and kind of the, the checks and balances that we have within uh, Canadian agriculture in general is, is amongst the most respected and, and coveted in the world. And, and so, I mean, you know, quick kudos to a lot of one, the Bruce organizations, but also, you know, some of the, the, the government organizations who have put a lot of these things together. Um, and, and people recognize that if it comes from Canada, it's, it's safe and it's, it's a quality product. And, and I think, um, you know, that's where we, we, we definitely have a, a leg up on, on, on some of these competitors from other countries, I would say. Now, not to say that they are not producing you know, potentially quality or, or safe food. The difference is that we just have a lot of checks and balances within Canadian agriculture that ensures that quality and can prove that quality. And I think, you know, you're probably going to love the segue, but, you know, in terms of the traceability and, and, and some of the technology that is now starting to be used in agriculture in general, um, just further cements that, that, uh, that success of how well we are at producing food and, and the quality behind it. So, for example, we might be the first to blockchain it up in the world where it doesn't take six days to figure out where a shitty, you know, segment of the food chain came from. It takes six minutes. Yeah. So I think, I think blockchains, like it's this awesome buzzword, right? If you, if you talk about it immediately, you're considered, you know, the smartest person in the room. I just did it. Um, I just did it. I just, you're, you're clearly the smarter person. Blockchain. Uh, uh, Blockchain. 
hashtag blockchain. <laughs> I know I, I am a cryptocurrency superstar. I'm trading cryptocurrencies <laughs> while we're doing this podcast. So, so you know, the, the reality is that blockchain is a great solution, <laughs> right? Um, oh, sorry. I have to sell some Bitcoin once. Um, um, I've done a full disclosure. I've traded a little bit. I'm playing, um, I'm playing Zelda on my phone. I mean, blockchain, I mean, cryptocurrency and my one. <laughs> Ripple ripples down 20%. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I go on this all day here. Come on down. Um, no, but, but seriously, like Bitcoin in essence, it's a great solution for a lot of different things. And, and, but one thing that I'm struggling with is, um, where where is the where is the where is the problem that that is being solved? I mean, for example, cash grain trade, right? You know, if if I applied blockchain for payment processing purposes in terms of a contract and whatnot, is it is it really a problem? I mean, specifically in Canada and the U.S., defaults in terms of cash grain trade cash grain trade is literally about one percent. So out of a $200 billion a year industry, you know, yeah, okay, $2 billion a year might, you know, default, but then we have um, the, the insurances in terms of, in terms of, you know, credit or not credit. Um, well, you do have credit insurance, but you have, you have the CGC licenses and the bond associated with that. And then in the U S it's, it's uh, uh, um, state level bonds with a North Dakota department of agriculture and whatnot. Right. So there are protections in place already. Um, and so, if I, if I, if I, if I think honestly about it, you know, it's probably those government entities that are better served to provide a blockchain solution for payment security, right? Now you have the traceability component. What about, what about sourcing back to the farm? I mean, we've seen some malt barley, uh, blockchain initiatives. I mean, the red shed malting guys out in Alberta, they've been doing a great job right that people want to know where their food is coming from, which is great. It's tough to say, okay, I grow 3,000 acres of barley in Phone Lake, Saskatchewan. This is how it's done because, you know, each bushel of barley is producing, I can't remember the statistic, but how many bottles of beer, right? Um, so so what, I, what I, I tend to think about more so right now in blockchain is that before blockchain comes in, we actually need to agree on kind of a set of parameters and, and the language in which the information around kind of pre-harvest in terms of production, what soil was, what was the variety used, what was the, the recipe essentially to produce that crop. And, and how does that translate over to the post-harvest side, the, the processing, um, the purchase, the transport, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and there's, there, we haven't yet been able to agree across the ecosystem that this, this is the language that we're going to use. And so it's, 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 it's kind of like, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, like at FarmLead, I, I am the biggest fan of collaboration. I know, again, I, I know that I'm not an expert in, uh, in agronomy or, or, you know, fixing a, a piece of equipment or, or, you know, what is the exact, you know, kind of uh, rate I should be applying this, this, uh, this uh, chemical or insecticide with, right? Um, but I know that if this information can be shared more easily up through the value chain to the consumer... Um, that's going to be rewarded in some ways. And, and today, I don't know if it's an extra premium. It's hard to say because it doesn't seem like anyone's willing to pay if there is sort of traceability. They're certainly willing to pay if there's an organic label on it or a non-GMO label on it. Um, but but and, and 
I, I ultimately, I think that without a consistent language that people are willing to say, this is, this is the, this is what we all agree to. And whether you're using farm lead or using another platform or you're, you're buying from Cargill or selling to Cargill or, or Richardson or, you know, PH, the point is that it's one consistent language that the entire industry can, can operate around. And so, um, we've been, we've been really trying hard to go and, and, and drive that together here at FarmLead. I think the challenge is that everyone is, well, this is, I'm, you know, if you talk to some of the bigger companies, like, you know, we're going to control it and then they each want to control it. And, and so it makes it extremely difficult. And so what I'm actually starting to see is that the, the so-called traceability or, or, or blockchain solutions are actually very siloed because nobody wants to adapt. And that's, that's probably, or they don't want to collaborate. Uh, at this point. So, you know, we're going to continue to push on our side, um, um, you know, that open API and information flow. Um, and I can tell you, I mean, we, we have about six or seven farm data management platforms that we're, we're currently in the process of collaborating with to say, okay, here's the information of how this crop was produced. Let's push it up to the value chain. And, um, you know, this buyer is looking for specific you know, uh, fertilizer use scenarios, how much fertilizer was applied and, and when was it applied or when was the chemical applied? You know, that information can be flowed up through the value chain through a platform like FarmLead. Um, and then they can in turn be able to process it or share it with, with their consumers or processors or, or whatnot. So I think, I think blockchain will have a place, but I think it's the end solution of, of, of again, it's a, it's a great solution, but there has been no, not enough effort in terms of being able to align the value chain um, for that purpose yet. I totally agree. That's probably where the bottleneck is. Uh, I've been kind of fantasizing about building a brand. I think what you're talking about here is a brand. Uh, I'd love to have a brand that we could sell on the conventional farming side that was, hey, these 40 producers that went into brand flakes, uh, they used fertilizer that was recycled from from grocery waste or extracted from urban waterways to prevent pollution, and it makes soccer moms around the world feel great about buying it for their kids. No, and and that's the thing; it's a story. We 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 lost the battle on GMOs because we just figured uh, people are going to turn a blind eye to it, and we know going forward that's not the case. So, who in the hell um, is going to eat something called a genetically modified? organism brad wall made this point i totally agree like who the hell was in charge of branding that like you want to put something in your mouth that's been genetically modified organism or like i mean i i've been genetically modified technically speaking tell me more tell me more i mean you have to ask my mom and dad about the specifics but (laughs) okay is there some kind of like uh life extension technologies here that i'm not aware of that you could share because my uh my stretch well my life life goal is 189 my stretch goal is 240 so you better be sharing brother well i think you're you're better off probably talking to uh mel gibson i don't know if you oh yeah lately what's he on apparently it's stem cells in mexico uh, stem cell treatment. But I also just read a, an interesting article. Uh, and I think, I think we might've shared it on, on one of the farm and social media channels, but, uh, the foods you need to eat to live to a hundred. Um, and they, they have these, what's called, I can't remember who did the study, but they have these blue zones around the world where people like the average 
life expectancy is way higher than average for that specific country. So, right, right. you know, places, places around the Mediterranean and, and Sardinia and, and a couple places in in Italy and then, um, areas of, of, um, uh, South America where, um, there's not as well, you know, they're, they're suggesting you can eat meat like two to three times a week, but they're also suggesting, Hey, two to, two to three glasses of wine a day is also okay. I'm like, all right, that's all right then. Um, uh, the, you know, you're, you're eating a lot more vegetables and colorful vegetables is the big thing, right? Not just eating potatoes, but maybe sweet potatoes or you're eating red peppers and, and you're eating leafy greens. And, you know, it's, it's, I think that indeed, if we think about where, where is, you know, the, the, the world of the consumer going, they're, they're definitely being more conscious of the quality of the content that they're putting into their bodies. Now I will say that this is a first world problem. Um, because in places like, you know, Zambia and, and Zimbabwe and Vietnam, you're taking any calories you can get. Right. Um, but as you move up into the higher thresholds of, of income and become maybe part of that middle class in that country, you're shifting away from just rice and vegetables to, to noodles and breads and, and pork and beef. And, and you're actually starting to, to eat meat. And, and so that being said, I still think, it's, it's interesting how in, in a developed, developed economy, we've, we've almost started this shift and, and I don't know if it'll continue over the next you know, generation or so, but the shift of, of trying to eat almost less meat and more plant-based foods. Right. And on the flip side, in the emerging markets, people are getting into the middle class. They're trying to eat less plant-based foods and more meat. Right. So you have this like dynamic of, of almost a switcheroo that's happening. Um, and which is, if, if I'm being honest, it's great for a Western Canadian producer because yeah, in places like India and stuff, yeah, they're going to need pulses for forever. Um, but now it's actually opening up the door for a domestic consumption factor within the market structure that, uh, you know, excites me uh, for my family that literally farms tens of thousands of acres of lentils and peas. Um, I'm thinking about what, what, what's how this can be great. But on the flip side, I'm also growing these these, these, these wheat varieties and these, these other barley varieties that potentially go into the feed market that is going to be exported into places like Asia and Africa because they have meat production that's starting to, to scale there to meet the domestic demands of, of those um, that emerging and growing middle class. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic that's, that's happening, in my opinion. Yeah, a couple of things on that. I've read about these places in the world where people live exceptionally long, but I'm not sure if the article that you read mentioned it all, um, but the element that I find very interesting is, is largely their lifestyle, not necessarily just their diet. So yeah, they're having a couple glasses of wine a day and they're eating good, but they have more time for everything. They have larger family units. They're making love a couple times a day. I mean, this is a completely different paradigm than we're talking out here. And they're, and they're walking two to three miles a day. It's true. Right? It's true. You know, they're, they have an, we'll say it's not necessarily an active lifestyle. They're not cross-sitting. But, um, you know, they, they are, oh wait, am I allowed to talk about CrossFit? I'm not sure. Um, where's Jeff Bennett when you need, when you need him? Um, Turn off the comments on this particular podcast. <laughs> hey, I, I'll, hey, you know, we're going into that. I, I am the, the first person to be an advocate of interval training. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, growing, going into, you know, the NHL being drafted and whatnot. Um, I started doing interval training. I was like 14 years old, probably Jonathan Taves was like one of my first training partners. And, um, he, 
uh, was, was probably, I, I mean, still is one of the hardest workers I've ever met, but interval training is really good. And so anyone doing CrossFit or generally speaking, doing something better to, to, uh, make their lifestyle a little bit more healthy and, and maybe justify that, that extra piece of bread or, or a couple extra glasses of wine, um, or beer or scotch or whatever you're drinking, Ryan Cokes, the, the point is go for it. Be, you know, try to, try to improve your, your yourself. I totally believe in interval training. I was just trying to look up this guy that I read his book on, but he was back in the day. He did some uh, training of Olympic guys. He even trained uh, Schwarzenegger at one point, but Schwarzenegger couldn't take the regime and it was really fascinating stuff. So this was back in the, Oh man, I think it was like fifties and sixties. Um, I'll have to fact check later. But this guy went to Africa. He watched all these large mammals and how they stayed so fit and muscular. And he was watching lions that would spend 90% of their time lounging under a tree. But 5 or 10% of the time, they were all out. When they went for their food, they were all out. And he saw like large cats could jump over a fence with a gazelle in their mouth and looked at their exceptional fitness. So he would literally take bodybuilders that are typically working out two, three hours a day in the gym every day. They'd fly in to see him. The first thing he, they would do when they got off the plane is, you're cut off. You're not doing anything for literally a week. And so they would just be fit to be tied because they're used to working out every day. But their body's actually got a chance to heal. And then he would put them through such an intensive regime, they'd be like puking after 45 minutes of working out, which, I mean... You you can do. I'm sure sure you've got stories about it, but the muscles would tear and heal in such a way that he was competing on an Olympic level of bodybuilding with the guys that he was coaching. Uh, with sometimes they'd only work out once a week. It was extraordinary stuff. It was really interesting. I'll have to look that up. Circle back and uh, you know put the link in the podcast. But you know, it's we've we've uh, you know I've trained with some some elite athletes. Um, not just hockey players that are, you know, currently in the NHL. I mentioned John Taves, but there are guys like Cody Eakin and Darren Helm and um, just some, some elite athletes. And, and, um, and the, you know, it's, it's recovery is of the utmost importance. Like there's almost more emphasis today on recovery at that elite level than there is on the actual regime that you go through for, for working out. Now, further to that, like it, it brings up an interesting topic about like just general growth, like in, in, in athletics or, or, or kind of a healthy, again, coming back to the healthy lifestyle. The fact is that you need to stress your body to essentially grow those muscles, right? You cannot, cannot expand your, 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 your strength or your stamina. If you're not, are, if you're not, are, are kind of stressing that, that component and, 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 I think that your mind and your brain is a muscle in itself, right? And if you're not kind of stressing your brain or challenging your brain, then it, you know, it'll, it'll start to just start to fade away. Right. And, and so, um, which is, you know, it's interesting. There's been some studies done about like people who just like they retire and they don't do anything and end up basically dying or getting sick or unhealthy faster because they're just literally not challenging themselves in any way. And so I think that whether, whether you're working out or, um, you know, you're challenging your, yourself to, to do more in terms of, of uh, you know, math problem or, or reading up on this new subject, like blockchain there, I did it again. Um, thank you. The, thank the you. point, the, the <laughs> point is that you need, you need to, to be, to, I think, you know, again, this is a personal preference of mine. You need to be constantly stressing or constantly learning 
to continue to improve. And, and this is why, I mean, in a friendly breakfast brief, I, I sign it off to growth. Every day we should try to be growing. Every, every day is an opportunity to improve in some sort of way, learn something new. And uh, one of my one of my good friends who used to be in the NFL and now runs a uh, uh, um, a money fund. Um, he literally he literally will will usually start a conversation. Maybe we haven't talked to him for a few weeks. Shout out to, to Ryan Nietzsche. Um, fun fact: he's he's married to um, um, Willa Ford. He used to be married to Mike Medano. Um, her real name is Amanda, by the way. Unbelievably amazing couple and and such a nice lady. But we, we haven't talked for a while, and he'll literally say you know, what have you learned today? And that's how we start the convent, right? What, you know, what have you done to learn something new today? Um, and, and that's what I think, I think, you know, that individual component of, Hey, this is something new, whether it's a fun fact thing or whatever it might be, try, try learning something new every day. Well, on purpose, they say statistically, if you're above the age of 80, if you, if you retire and you really don't have anything to replace that, I think you statistically won't last much more than two years. Um, and if you lose your spouse, you won't last more than one year. Um, so life, I think, again, going back to these areas of the world, you're talking about got this amazing life lifespan. I think a lot of it has to do with the integration of the family unit. And if you're not dying alone with no purpose, you can go a hell of a long time because, I mean, your purpose at 100 in some of those places in Italy might be to take care of the little ones and prepare the you know, that last two or three hours a day where everybody's sitting down and they're not Snapchatting. Just the thought. Yeah. I mean, I, I have, uh, I, I you know now on the iPhones, I don't know if they do it on Androids or not. I'm not a, an Android user, but, uh, they, they tell you like what, how much did you use your phone this week? Now, right, right. Right. Um, and so I've been like constantly trying to like pull back and pull back and pull back, like to the point where I literally don't even, um, I don't get, I don't get the, the buzz or the, 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 uh, I just ruined phone your segment going. with the phone call. <laughs> Never again. Am I doing this podcast? I'm no, out of here. Talk to my agent. The, 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 uh, the, it, you know, I, I try to continuously pull it back and pull it back to the point where like, I literally, I don't have notifications on my phone doesn't buzz, right, right, right. uh, unless it's a specific thing, right? If it's a, if it's a productivity thing, like uh, we use, it's a, it's a tool called Slack. It's a communication tool actually started by a Canadian. Um, and the, uh, you know, text messages, Twitter notifications, other notifications, it's all in silent. And, you know, I just say, okay, this is the time where I'm going to be checking email, checking notifications and, and try to, again, keep the discipline, keep the focus on one specific task versus being distracted, distracted, distracted. Now, the other thing, I mean, like, so much for talking about agriculture here, but um, the 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 reality is that use of phones, and I mean this has been suggested by numerous smarter people than me on this sub- subject matter, but the use of phones is is killing off our ability to interact socially and learn, you know, especially for younger generations or the younger kids. They don't know how to date. They don't know how to call for a you know a, a reservation. They don't know how to do all these different things that are required for a social lifestyle outside of, again, maybe just your family. And, and so, um, it's kind of frustrating and, and I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, over the long term, these productivity tools, so to speak, um, you know, those are, those are important, but at the same time, things are like a, 
I don't call them a net life gain. Like what am I gaining from Snapchatting my lifestyle? I don't know. Um, you know, it's interesting to get information from Twitter and whatnot. I don't have Instagram personally. Um, and I, I, I kind of think of like, what do I gain? What am I getting out of this, this tool that is Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatnot? What am I gaining from it? Okay. I get to see other people's lifestyles, but therein it's like, okay, I know that's really not how they're feeling right now. Like that's a, that's a BS post that they just did because I know they're <laughs> dealing with this. Yeah. Right. And, it, and it, it almost seems fake to a certain extent. And, and, um, I, I, I think that what I, I indeed try to focus on to your point is like those real relations, right? I like to pick up the phone instead of texting people more often not. Um, and I, I mean, I love FaceTime, right? I get to talk to family members that I'm not necessarily in the same city as I travel a lot. And so sometimes that's difficult. Um, but, but instead of, instead of maybe reading Snapchat or, you know, worried about my, what my story is or whatever, or posting on Facebook every single day, about how great my life is like, you know, maybe I'm going to read this book instead, or maybe I'm going to read the subject matter of like, what the foods, what are the foods that you should be eating to live to a hundred? Um, so on and so forth. It's hard to read a book now, eh? Like it is hard to read a book after, you know, without reading two paragraphs and then going back to scrolling. It's just. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because I, I have a rule that I need to, I read a, at least a book a month. Nice. Um, and, and then I have also the audio book. So I, I use, I use, um, audible. Thanks. Are you syncing it? Do you visit, like, does it, the, the thing sync? Cause that you can do that. eh? I know I can do that, but I don't. So, so the audible one is more so, um, when I'm on a plane and I can't necessarily take a stack of books or I don't have room for a book on my carry on in my bag. Um, and you know, just, you know, public transportation, walking or whatever, going for a run, even, you know, again, getting back to the active lifestyle, um, you know, jumping on the bike or doing something, I'll put on the podcast. And, um, again, it's mostly, it's not like fictional stuff. It's like, it's real, um, applicable business practices or leadership practices. Um, and, uh, I've actually paid for, for some of my siblings who are now getting into leadership roles. I paid for their audible accounts so that they can start reading or listening to, kind of being immersed in some of these, like, you know, improve yourself, be better, get better. You can do this sort of thing. Um, some have, have taken advantage more than others. I won't name names. But <laughs> see, the, the, the point is that, um, I, I think reading is, is one of those things that it's just, it's just healthy to push away all the distractions because when you're on the audiobook, you can easily just flip over into Twitter or your email or whatever. Right. Right. Whereas, um, I try to really focus on when I am on an audiobook. I try to take notes, and uh, and so I will have my my email or my my computer open because I'm taking notes on it usually. And like these are the specific things that are, are resonating with me, and I go back and retype something. But in a book, I get to like literally underline it and um and and kind of like again still take some notes, but it's something that like it'll stay with me a little bit more. And I don't know that's just kind of how I do it, but. I will say we were, we were also just in, in, in the Caribbean on a family vacation. Um, and I read three books, so I'm, I'm kind of caught up so far. What are you, what are you reading right now? Me. What are you reading right now? Um, so I'm, I'm part of a, a, um, I was, was humbly asked to join a group called the Henry crown fellowship as part of the Aspen Institute last year in 2018. And, and so right now I'm uh, reading a, a kind of a, a short book called the executive compass. 
and uh, executives company, excuse me. It's part of, it's part of our required reading as part of the Henry Crown Fellowship. And, and so um, it's, a, it's a very short read. I think it's like, like 100 pages total, 110 or something. But the, the subject matter is just so intense and, and um, thought-provoking that like, I, I literally had to read chapter one three times just to kind of really grasp some of the content and questions that are being asked in terms of, you know, leading your company versus leading society and, and so on and so forth. So that's my current book right now. Um, full disclosure, again, it's mandatory reading for, our, for part of the, the group, but um, that's, that's on the, on the docket right now. On the flip side, I'm in the Oprah Winfrey book club. I'm so proud of you. You and my aunt, <clears throat> I'm reading eat, love, pray, uh, you know, for the seventh time. I haven't, I, I watched the movie. I'm a big <laughs> Julia Roberts fan. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was a big draw. I mean, she is a big, draw. I know she's an amazing, talented actress. Absolutely. Although I kind of feel like they undercut her significantly in oceans 12, but I did not see that. I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really yeah, get those she, movies. She's, she's literally an act, actress that uh, I'm also a big movie buff. So is she going to return as like the Aaron Brockovich that like kills glyphosate <laughs> in the sequel? That would be interesting. Cause it's not might be Aaron too- Brockovich on that particular tangent. She, she's getting paid good money to go to anti-glyphosate. It's a good business to be a liberal. I'm sorry. God bless them. It's, it's, uh, it's fun sometimes to have those conversations, but I know they're getting paid more than I do. <laughs> hey, we're entrepreneurs. We got to create that value before we ever get paid. And I'm still waiting. Um, work hard, get paid later. Right. That's right. That's right. Um, no, I love what you have to say about fitness and reading and stuff. And I think that's all extremely important. And I got a few book recommendations I can give you too. Um, moving back to markets and farming and all that good stuff. What do you think it is that producer producers are are sort of missing the most, the first easiest lever they could push that you see the most common that you would say, Hey man, you should be doing this. Uh, That's a good question. Um, There's, I mean, there's, there's lots of different variables on the farm, right? I mean, you, you know, you control, we can control our, our application rates of fertilizer and chemical. Now we can control our, our, our seed depth for the most part, we can control, um, how much we're seeding per, per square foot, all that sort of dynamic. Um, in your sphere of influence, the first thing that you're working with, the most common thing that you're kind of is like, geez, if, if farmers could just get this, it would make a world like the 20% would make 80% of the difference, but it's commonly missed or you just can't get people in that psychological. Is there something? Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a mentor uh, as part of the advancing ag mentorship program with Alberta weed and Alberta barley commissions. And uh, it's only been going on for two years, but for the two years I have intensely been stressing to people and these, these young farmers that are coming up and certainly going to be taking over you know, their, their family operations with their significant others or otherwise, I have been stressing, you need to know how much it costs. We hope that you are enjoying this episode of the Growing the Future podcast. Please take the time to visit our sponsor, Aberhart Egg Solutions at aberhartegsolutions.ca. 
where you can find innovative solutions that transform your farm. And now, back to the show. How much is this, like literally being able to benchmark these numbers of how much an additional spray work is going to cost you? And how does that affect the bottom line? Or what is the cost of production on oats versus canola versus barley versus peas or flax or whatever it might look like this year? You need to have something to anchor on. Um, and, and further than that, um, I wish people would write this sort of information down more and, and, and save it and constantly look at it. Because when you're constantly reading information it, and, and it's pretty much the same information over and over again, it stays with you. Right. I'll give you a quick example. And, and, and this is what I share in a lot of my presentation or my speaking circuit. Um, I, in grade 12 at Athenborough College of Notre Dame in Wilcox, Saskatchewan, great school. Um, shout out, shout out to the hounds. Um, I wrote on my, on a, a post-it note, my goals for that year, my grade 12 year. Number one was to get an NCAA division one scholarship. And my number two was to get drafted to the NHL. And um, I knew that number one was probably going to happen. I was talking to a lot of schools and whatnot. Um, but that number two was the one that was, was almost more important, you know, kind of like from an ego perspective, I guess you could say, but number one, I knew that, you know, if I got a college scholarship, education paid for, don't have to worry about a lot of other stuff. Um, and, and it was a constant reminder every day I opened up my locker in my bedroom, I had to look at this piece of paper and it constantly reminded me, what am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to go for? And so, um, coming back to the mentorship component is, if you are constantly looking at your cost of production or the numbers associated with it, you know, sometimes it's hard to look at, but it's, it's a, it's a reminder of, okay, we gotta, we gotta watch this part or we watch that part because at the end of the day, I come back to what we started talking about um, at the beginning of our, of our, of the, of the podcast is understanding what your cost of production is and, and how that relates to your cash flow. You can understand okay, if that weed is at 725 a bushel, I'm going to be making this much more. And this is what it translates to per bushel. And maybe I should even be contracting some of new crop because I know that I can produce this crop for you know $6 a bushel or whatnot. Right. So understanding that, that number and being able to talk about it very um, definitively is, is probably the one thing I wish more producers could do. And you, I mean, the thing is we hear it all the time from so many other market analysts. I mean, I've got lots of friends and so do you who, who talk about cost production, cost production, you need to know your cost production. That is my number one rule. in when it comes to grain marketing, if you don't know your cost of production, your grain marketing plan is going to be just as worse. Do you have an element of your companies that helps producers discern that? So we have there, I mean, there's, there's so many, to be honest, we don't. Um, we have, we have what's called grain marketing university, and we have a lot of different resources in there. Um, and we point to a lot of, here's a cost production template. Uh, I think, uh, Alberta agriculture has a great one. Manitoba agriculture has a great one. There's a lot of different tools that are out there, but even at the same time, I can tell you that every single person's, every single farmer's accountant or bank that they use has some sort of tool that they can get for free from these people. And then now there's a lot of other tools that you can pay for farm, farm data management tools or, or farm management systems that are, that are digital where you can track a lot of this information. But, but the point is that it's, it's not that hard to get access to a template to say, let's put in a, a couple of these fillers. And so, um, I can tell you that, that, uh, one of my mentees, he pulled up, he pulled it off of, uh, I think it was Alberta agriculture. Yeah. He got it from his accountant. 
And we just, we just kind of like played with a couple of the scenarios like, okay, what if, what if we produce 25% less or what if we produce 25% more? What is, you know, basically some of the variables and, and basically keying into the spreadsheet. Um, what are the couple of the scenarios that were happening? What if we have to spray an extra two times uh, more than we're expecting? You know, how does that influence the bottom line? And just starting to get a very good understanding of how these numbers can, can be impacted so significantly very quickly. Um, it just, it, you become a lot more comfortable with your operational skills in terms of a balance sheet standpoint. So you know, the, the kind of the rule of thumb is that somewhere between 45 to 50% of farmers are, are great farmers in terms of growing a crop and managing their soil health. You know, another 45 or so percent are, are great mechanics. They can fix pretty much any piece of equipment out there in the world. Uh, and then there's like five to 10% of farmers who are, are people who think about the numbers and are obsessed with it. And so it's tough in my opinion, to kind of be one of, you know, all three of those at the same time. And this is, again, maybe coming back to the stress. Maybe what is your goal for 2019, 20 crop year? I want to be more in tune with my balance sheet, my numbers, and, and being able to have more honest conversations with not only myself, but also my family members, and also my accountant or banker about really what's going on. These are the things that I'm trying to focus on right now. And, and it just requires you to constantly live in it, right? We love to go crop check and scout the fields and, and, you know, at night and, you know, maybe you're, you're having a safety meeting while you're doing it. But <laughs> yeah. If we, why not have a safety meeting while we're talking about some of the numbers? Actually, I take that back. It's probably not great to sometimes involve alcohol when you're talking about some hard, hard subject matter. Like if the numbers aren't looking necessarily positive, but I'm sorry, short, <laughs> why shouldn't we be having these conversations more? And that's what I, I really try. I, I would hope that, um, that people try to try to do a little bit more going forward. Say that I'm a producer and I know those numbers. How am I feeling about this year? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot more weed. I've said, I've said it for the last couple of months. I think the prices that you see today aren't going to be necessarily available this time of year from now. Um, canola is just kind of one of those ugly, ugly birds right now that, um, you still want to hunt, but don't necessarily want to eat. And, and I think it's, uh, um, there's a lot of political influences that are happening right now. And again, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole, but um, I think I, I should mention that specifically on the wheat side, I think our, our producer organizations have done a, a very good job of continuing to promote, you know, the quality and the safety of, of what we're producing specifically in Western Canada. And um, I think that's why you've seen wheat exports continue to climb despite there being a record amount of wheat available in the world. Um, Canada has, has, has continued to increase its market share specifically the last couple of years. And, I, and I, it's great to see, I think it's our producer Even without check the off fees. Ironically. Yeah. If you can believe it, um, you know, we've, we've, we I think, you know, you needed a couple of, of years of, of understanding the market dynamics and people figuring out what, what will work and what will not work. And we're starting to now, um, see some of the success of the strategies implemented a couple of years ago is now starting to pay off. And that's the thing we have to continue to think about you know, versus the recency bias of, Oh crap, we're not selling into this market as much anymore. Italy, uh, for example, in the Durham market, it's like, okay, what, what else can we sell into? Where can we go with this, with this market? So, um, you know, that's, that being said, um, you know, India and pulses like that's, that's such a, um, you know, a, a quagmire that, and, and gong show for lack of a better fact, I, I, I've, I've written about it many times about how the 
trade policies of the Indian government has been so inconsistent. And as a result, it's actually their producers that are and their people who, who are the ones who, who lose out the most um, because of, of very volatile food prices. And, and um, especially in a, in a market like India, where you have hundreds of millions of people um, in an impoverished state of affair. I mean, it's, it's, it's very tough. Um, so I think, I think, Unless you see good monsoon rains this this June to September in India, you're going to continue to see those those tariffs on on pulses. But more generally speaking, I think that the demand for for pulses will continue to to grow. Um, so that's a positive. And I think I think generally the demand for feedstuffs is going to continue to grow. We mentioned how uh, the the demand for for meat in emerging economies of the growing middle class is it's not going to stop in my opinion. So I, I think that you're going to continue to see that. And because a lot of these countries um, are just not self-sufficient when it comes to agricultural production and food security, you're going to have to continue to rely on, on players like Canada and the U S and the black sea and some of the, some of these other places like Brazil and Argentina uh, to be able to produce that. So um, I think uh, it's easy to complain about what we don't have or what we did have a couple of years ago and how it's changed, right? You know, 13, 14, $15 canola, uh, how we had nine and $10 wheat the first week of July, 2017. Um, and it's easy always to point back to those records or those amazing scenarios where, yeah, we're going to buy a new truck and we're going to buy, you know, a couple of new bins and whatnot because things are so great. But, um, one of, one of the, um, things, my grandfather, I didn't, he wasn't around for a long time before, before he passed, but literally coming from that scenario where you lose everything overnight when the Bolshevik revolution happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is, you know, things can change very quickly and there's two rules that, that he always kind of had said and it's passed down. Now, um, the first is always expect the, or, or always expect the unexpected. And the second is pay yourself before anyone else. And so, you know, I come back to cost of production. Uh, you should include something in there in terms of paying yourself, whether it's, you know, 10 bucks an acre or 15 bucks an acre, account for that or 20 bucks or whatever it might be. The point is, think about what am I accounting for in my cost of production that's going to literally meet my personal and family needs to live. Um, and a lot of people don't do that. They just think about crop inputs, cost of land, equipment, appreciation, et cetera. Um, I think about, okay, I'm going to pay myself when I grow this crop as well. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, I think that we're still going to be generally profitable as a farmer. We won't be certainly as profitable as we have been in the likes of 2013 or 2012, or again, you know, kind of, uh, two years ago. Um, but I think that there's going to be probably some swings in the 2019, 20 crop year over the next 10 to 12 to 18 months, where uh, you're going to have an opportunity. And instead of thinking to yourself, well, I think it go even minimize your loss aversion by saying, maybe I should sell something here because if it goes higher, I still have something left to sell, but if it pulls back, I'm going to be kicking myself again. And, and, and that's, that's a tough one. It's just willing to, to, commit a little something, um, when you do see a, a, an opportunity to the upside and, and sell into that strength, so to speak, um, because nobody knows exactly when things are going to turn, but I can certainly say, and, and again, I do it in the breakfast brief, 
know, things are looking kind of bearish now. Are we at, or are we at the bottom? Are we going to be on the upturn at this point? Cognizant of some of the seasonality and, and what's going on in the rest of the world markets. You know, these are the things to think about. So I think, um, all things considered, we're going to be able to succeed again in 2019, 2020 crop year. I think a lot of farmers, um, recognize that, you know, if they're, if they're asked, but yeah, sure. Things could be better. Um, but in these scenarios, the things that could be better are outside of our control. They are, uh, geopolitical factors. And so with that in mind, unless you're specifically involved in a producer organization where you're coming to Ottawa and you're lobbying people or you're going to, you know, Washington, DC to lobby people, maybe focus on yourself. And again, what can I improve this year? How can I improve? What are, what are some of the goals that I would have for my, my operation, my family, my, my own personal, uh, uh, self, what am I trying to improve and, and try to focus on that when, when there's so many other factors that are outside of your control. That's right. There's things that are our business and then there's things that's God's business and you can do nothing about. Um, do you have an opinion on the seed royalty thing? I, 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 I've been trying to read up on it. Um, and I just haven't found the time to really gather a full opinion. Um, it's, it's a very divisive issue. Yes. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's healthy that the government is trying to collect information. They've gone about it, I think, completely the wrong way in terms of telling people when these events are happening. And, and um, I think they need to do a better job around that transparency of the collection of the information. But that's always the case in government, right? Like they, <laughs> they have a specific agenda. They will do something. And if it's not, if, if people... I want to weigh on it. They weigh in on it. They, they try to avoid that as much as possible. So I think transparency is always a good thing in the long run. And, and uh, people respect you all a lot more for when you do provide it. So, um, I don't have a perspective right now. Thanks for reminding me to, uh, brush up on my, my, uh, subject matter. We will circle back in season two folks. Don't you worry. Um, Brennan is China spying on us? Uh, yes and no the 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 reality is that the device in your pocket or on your tv is probably spying on you more than than a specific government um very i'm very aware of uh um, how, how we are tracked as individuals today across the internet, or just, you know, generally speaking, moving from one point to the other. I mean, you scan your passport or whatever it might be, your barcode associated with your airline pass or your via train. I mean, you're, you're tracked everywhere you go. Um, the question really comes down to, I think is, um, do you want anyone tracking you? And that's a very libertarian question, by the way. Um, and, and another question I, I, I guess I'm asking is, do we feel safe allowing, uh, somebody who has maybe a track record of doing something that's, we'll say malicious in nature? Um, do we want to be working with them? And I think this is really what the agenda of, of kind of U S Chinese trade talks are about is, is around this IP. I mean, the specifically, uh, Robert Lighthizer, the, the U.S. lead negotiator for, for these, these talks, especially said, we're not signing any deal 
unless China removes its requirement for you to do business in China, you have to give us your um, kind of your technology secrets and the IP and be willing to share that with us. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very cognizant of the size of their market. And at the same time, um, the result is you see a lot of copycats and whatnot. And, and I, I, I am not a fan of, of giving away your expertise necessarily for free, although I've given it to you today for free. Um, <laughs> is it really free no, or is this going to cost me in terms of karma? Yeah, I don't, I hope not. I think you're a great guy and I, and I love what you're doing. And, and I love, I love uh, you know, everything that you guys have done on your guys' farm in terms of, in terms of advancing you know, different techniques and testing things and trying things and growing again, you know, stressing what works and what doesn't work to, to figure it out for the, for the long term. Thank you. Um, so the, I, I think that if you want to, if you, if you're going to be a cheater, I don't want to work with you. Right. And, and I think at, at, at the crux of the issue, that's, that's how China is viewed by some of these, these different, well, specifically on the U S side, but I think even to a certain extent here in Canada, some people are thinking of that. And, and, um, let's, let's just play fairly. You're going to be able to do business in our country and you're going to be compensated accordingly. And, you know, you know, we're, we want to do business in your country and we want to be compensated accordingly. But if you start um, going behind my back and, and kind of, you know, we'll say kind of skimming off the top or whatnot, um, then I, I really don't want to work with you. And, and, and you're not something, somebody that I want to be able to shake hands with and I can't look in the eye necessarily. And so, you know, you could, you could kind of make an analogy that China hasn't necessarily done a good job of, of being in front of that conversation, just like the agricultural industry hasn't done a good job of being in front of the GMO conversation. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are always bad actors, uh, a lot less bad actors than there are good actors. And I think China's intentions are, are in the right, you know, going towards the right, um, the right way. But, um, I think in, a, in, in indeed a democratic yet capitalistic society that we live in within a first world environment, um, you know, they, they, they certainly have to be able to, to compromise a little bit more than they have in the past. China might not share some of our core values. I mean, again, political and political reasons aside, um, and the fact that at the time of this podcast, my business partner is in China, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> that's good. That's good. No, it's uh, they're a big customer and uh, a big deal. And uh, we'll continue. to. I mean, it, like a canola situation specifically, right? I mean, you're, you're talking literally about somewhere between 20 to 25% of all Canadian canola production going to one country. Right. And if you lose that market, look what happened to the U S soybean market. Right. Um, so I, I think right now, again, we're in the middle of March here. We're talking about, uh, what's going on you know, po- political wise is canola being used as that, is that change agent? I'm not sure. But the point is that it potentially gives us the opportunity to kind of reset some of the strategy of like, maybe we need to diversify a little bit here. Right. Maybe we need to go look for some other opportunities, kind of like we've been able to do with wheat. Um, what are some of the markets that might be looking for this? And, and that's a combination of both public and private effort. Um, it can't just be one or the other. Um, and, and even though, yeah, companies are competing with each other for that business, um, again, it's a collective industry as a whole that, that really needs to, to, that will benefit if you are, if you are diversifying who those, those products are exported to and whatnot. Do you think club roots going to change the game? Uh, if we're going longer rotations, would that have an effect on volume at all? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's a great question. I mean, it's such a, it's just a nasty little thing. Right. And, and if you're not on top of it, like proactive and being pragmatic about it, um, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot if you're not right. And, and so, um, I think, you know, there, there will be ramifications over the next five to 10 years if people do not watch that. Um, and, uh, it's, it's to their own fault. If they're, if they're not being in front of it, you can't blame anyone else other than yourself, because this is just the way that, that, that the nature of, of agriculture works. Um, yeah, I can blame my neighbor for the one person <laughs> doing it, I guess. But at the same time, if you have preventative measures in place, then then you should be able to protect yourself. So that's a very um, controversial stance, Brandon. I got to warn you. I, I understand that, but at the same time, like I, I mean, okay. The flip side is: do we make people? Do we make it mandatory that you have to have a four or five crop rotation? Right? Do is that is that the the rule? Um, or is it, is it, is it illegal to, you know, do you have to start submitting what you're planting on each specific quarter or section of land that you own or renting? Like what basically, and let me challenge you a little bit here in terms of what is, what is the proper step to ensure that club root doesn't continue to expand as an issue? It's very simple. As far as I understand, you have to, it's a volume issue with the spores. So you have to make sure that you're not transporting spores by volume in the soil from field to field. You need to extend your rotations. You need to use club root resistant varieties and uh, you need to stay educated on new, new uh, strains and stuff like that. But it's really interesting. We're actually going to do uh, well, by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have done it, but we're going to have done a, a webinar on club root with Dan Orchard, because I think it's a great opportunity for us. We're good at media. We can offer this opportunity for producers to learn from Dan. I don't think he's done a public webinar yet where people can ask questions in that format. Of course, my capitalist motivations are that a lot of people have been saying that there's, there happens to be club root in the product that we're distributing for various really, really weird sort of conspiratorial. Yeah. Like weird conspiratorial, easy to pick on things like, Oh, there's uh, cauliflower broccoli in the, in, in the, in the, in the grocery waste. So it could end up in, in our product. And we, we <laughs> people have suggested like, which I find really interesting, like ethically that, you know, we would be spreading, spreading club root. But anyways, Dan Orchard said, you know, it's really interesting because it's like going to your doctor and your doctor says, Hey man, you got to quit drinking. You got to quit smoking. You got to quit staying up late and driving too fast. And, uh, you know, uh, kicking your dog or whatever you do in your life that's unhealthy, um, or you're going to die. And some people will do it. Some people will basically make that. I mean, if you've ever been to a medical clinic, some people are making that choice by virtue of the things they're not doing or do doing, you know, exclusion or inclusion, uh, they're going to die. And he says, there's people who can't have done that. They have gone down that path. They can't grow canola anymore because they made those practical choices on rotation and not cleaning things and all that stuff. But it, that's the shocking part to me is that uh, um, I, I get that maybe the banker wants you to grow canola back to back, but you know, monocropping what, especially one crop. I mean, we don't want to go too far on the other side of the scale and suggest that everybody should intercrop three different crops every year. Cause I think 
we get a little bit of a backlash in the in the farming community yeah. in terms of the pain yeah. suffered for the potential gain. But at the same time, are we really going to grow canola every single year and not expect intense disease and resistance from Mother Nature? And your area would be classic. There's guys up there I know that are growing like canola eight times, and maybe you know, and they're still getting away with it. But well, this is this is the thing. Like you, you've kind of actually kind of help my point is it, it comes down to the individual, right? You know, the, the education around, um, spores, equipment, cleaning, uh, resistant varieties, you know, those, those are individual pieces of the puzzle. And, and so, um, th- the question is actually not, um, the question is actually not what should we do about it? It's, can we trust people to not do it. And if we can't trust people to not do it, what are the steps or, 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 or tools or practices that we need to put in place to ensure that the, that monocropping is not happening every single year? The things that is going to come along and will be good is, you know, people have to have the right infrastructure to come forward. And it's, you know, I know another issue in your, your home area and my, my area too is drainage and there has to be Mm. proper political uh, community infrastructure at all levels so that people can come forward and say, you know, this is what I want to do moving forward. Or if you do get club root, I mean, drainage, I mean, yeah, I mean, this we should be getting the mail at 4 PM over a bottle of vodka in this in in your hometown but i mean when it comes to club root i think people should have the proper situation that okay they can come forward and acknowledge that they have it and then they kind of maybe introduce different like you might escalate different steps but i mean if you're doing the things that more or less invite club root into your home in the first place so to speak if you put out the welcome mat for uh for club root i guess what do you i guess what do you expect again this is this is it's like we can we can make a really simple here today. We can say, you know, should you have an extra piece of pie <laughs> after supper? Probably not. But man, it's so much easier if you just did because then then it, it satisfies all the dopamine needs and whatnot. Right, and, right. And and it, you know you're just so much happier doing so. Oh, sometimes you regret it and you're like, oh, I feel those stuff. But you know, yeah. it's 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 you know what's what's the easy way out right it's just you know whatever you know i'm not going to be impacted by it so uh, i'm just going to keep doing what i'm doing and then it's shoot you know 3 or 4 or 5 years later and and you're kind of kicking yourself because you did do it and now you know you've lost probably one of the most profitable crops that you you've been able to consistently grow on your farm it's an interesting philosophical and financial uh, debate though because uh, i don't know if you've seen the studies or read the western producer article they're talking about fcc and mnp saying that the people growing wheat and canola wheat and canola wheat and canola and doing it really really well are actually the ones that are making money and then i look at my brother's farm i just put up a map for the uh, egg in the classroom on monday He's growing wheat, barley, canola, oats, flax, faba beans, hemp, uh, um, hybrid rye, uh, you know, a bunch of crazy shit. And it's extremely painfully logistically. But I think my brother always puts his agronomic foot forward. And it's always about having that rotation because they are, they don't use a lot of fungi. The variable rate their fungicides is another factor. But they don't use a lot of fungicide on the farm because the plants are healthy because of this whole thing. And it's like, yeah. well, but it's hard not to mainline that wheat and canola rotation and get really good at those two products logistically and, and uh, agronomically. Well, 
but it's, it's easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and you know, people tend to defer what's easiest. I mean, why, why do we have skip the dishes or Uber eats or <laughs> Uber for that matter? Right. I mean, it's, it's easy to do. Um, I think, I think having a crop rotation, I mean, on, on in Southwestern Saskatchewan down frontier, I, uh, I think it's a four crop rotation at this point. And then in Foam Lake, it's about a five. Um, and kind of depend on the field as well. And I mean, it's, it's, we, we think of it again, uh, from a long-term perspective, what are we gaining, right? It, it, trying to avoid that recency bias. What is the, what is the best for the long-term, the sustainable health drainage, probably more of an issue that we're, we're kind of frustrated about than anything. Um, in foam Lake, I mean, in frontier, that's the Palliser triangle. It's drier than I won't say what, but um, it's, it's dry. Um, although, I mean, you've seen, we cut mustard. That's like nine feet tall because that one year, I think it was 2016, 17, when it got so wet, mm-hmm. what was that? Three years ago now. Um, so I think, I think like it's, it's, it's a and to your point, like we can make money off of that. Like we're doing well. And, and, um, I think, I think if you were to consider again, elevating your game going outside of maybe the comfort zone of weed and canola you'd be surprised of like how possible you can be in some of those other crops now indeed if you're farming year to year and literally you know the the banker says this is what you're going to need to 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 produce in terms of being you know in terms of money and dollars to be able to survive another year um you go back to the old faithful every single time I know a fellow from the county where Clubbery was first discovered by Dan Orchard in Alberta, and he's still alive. He's pretty happy and healthy, and they, he actually said they don't do a lot about it, <laughs> and they're still giving her. But anyways, um, you you touched on something there. I want to drill down because I know you're the the guy on this. So you Uber. So Uber is so strange. My brother, he just raved about it. I was resistant to it. It's almost like I don't want to start texting. I don't know why I was resistant to the technology. But what gets me is it's such a subtle difference between calling the cab company, waiting for the cab, getting in the cab, paying the guy. All Uber does is sort of like streamline and simplify that thing. But it's absolutely a phenom in terms of, you know, how customers rave about it. And this digital disruption thing, I'm not sure... One of the things, uh, if you're familiar with Peter Diamandis' is, uh, you know, the six yeah. D's of disruption, yeah, digitization or whatever, that stuff is crazy. So I see this curve happening in a bunch of things in agriculture, Brennan, and it's kind of like, whoa, it's like you can barely see the shark fin, but it's about technology doubling and doubling uh, at very small scales. But then if like one, one analogy that I really liked was Kodak, where digital photos they're never going to be a thing and 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 for years and years the, the the digital photos were doubling 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 and then boom i mean kodak blockbuster just it's digitization deception disruption demonetization dematerialization democratization i mean you you said those words at the beginning you've probably read this guy and get this i've talked to peter Oh, sweet. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I got to get into that abundance 360 thing. Um, So where I'm going with this, I know sometimes it takes me about three minutes to ask a question and interject my own thoughts. But automation, marketing, inputs, uh, agronomy. Did I say agronomy? Um, You know, eating. I mean, 
where are we at? And I, you're literally building companies, plugging into this. And, uh, yeah. I mean, talk to me. No, no. It's, so it's, 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 it's a, I mean, it's the future of egg, right? I mean, so my business partner, Alain Gubo, super smart guy, smarter than I, um, he was literally at McKinsey and company, the big uh, consulting firm uh, on the global egg strategy team. And part of his job was to look at, you know, basically define what is the, the world of agriculture going to look like in 2040. Right. And we've had some, some raging debates because he, he comes from mostly a, a dairy farm in Eastern Ontario where, again, I'm cash grain, right? Um, and I, I think the, the, probably the, the, the thing that's most interesting for me is the automation component. Um, I'm a big math and physics nerd. Um, I was a couple of classes away from getting my physics minor at Yale. Um, but if you've ever seen the movie interstellar with Matthew McConaughey, absolutely, absolutely. uh, not to be confused with, uh, days and confused, but, um, <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a much brighter individual in interstellar. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the tinkering of an auto automated harvester tractor grain cart driver. I mean, those grain cart drivers are going to be in, you know, they're going to be in, in desperate need of, of a job because there's not going to be a lot of jobs available for them based on, on the way that, tractor, uh, reformatting kits and stuff are starting to come out to, to make your tractor autonomous. Um, I, I think that's probably going to be one of the first waves that, that is acceptable, but you touched on how technology and adoption rates double and double. And this is actually called Moore's law. Um, he was a, a professor at a Berkeley or Stanford. I can't remember which one. Um, but basically the, the Moore's law posits that the, um, power of a, a semiconductor microchip, can't remember which one exactly, but the power of, of the computing power will, will get smaller in size by half, but also double in capacity of how much you can process every year. And this was predicted like, I don't know, like in the seventies or something like that, or maybe eighties. And, and it's just, you know, and now you have, you know, these, these massive processing capabilities on like literally a, a fingerprint, right? of, 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 uh, you know, like a, a hardware or, or motherboard or whatever the, the again, I can talk about te technology Love it. objectively, but it. the hardware piece, I'm not that necessarily that guy. Um, so, so the point is Moore's law indeed will continue to force adoption. And, I, and then when you have companies who are actually paying people to adopt, right, they're subsidizing the adoption rates. That's what actually starts to you know, push or artificially inflate that Moore's law to a little bit more than half. And so, um, you could argue that Farmly is one of those companies. We've been driving this paradigm of digital cash grain trade or online commerce or e-commerce for the farm. We've been kind of one of those pioneers. And and we've helped other people get comfortable with the fact of why not buy my 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 crop put, crop inputs online or or contract with one of the companies that I do business with regularly just through their online app, right? And and so I think that the, the, the reality is that, and, and there's sorry, one more thing is that you have these younger generations comfortable with the use of technology that are coming back to the farm and it's forcing the older generation to adopt. Um, and, and if you don't adopt, then you're basically behind the curve, right? If you're not using GPS anymore, like, what are you thinking? Right. Whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was like, I'm not going to use GPS. It's not going to make me a better farmer. Right. And that's completely changed, right? It takes time, but indeed the adoption curve is, is happening faster. And so with that adoption curve, your, um, the, I guess the word I'm looking for is, is um, reliability or um, uh, 
allowance or, or acceptance of even the next level of, of online grain trader or, or to your point, auto hedging, you know, just take over my, my grain marketing automatically, your comfortability becomes that much more uh, significant. It's easier for me to do it because I'm already comfortable with this other phase of technology, right? This is why um, if we come back to the Uber component, I don't think people are going to care too much in 15 years or 10 years, even for that matter, if there is somebody actually driving their Uber, they're already comfortable. With the fact that somebody else is driving their, their car for them, they're going to eventually get a little bit more comfortable and comfortable over time. Like, you know, my guess is that you're going to start, you're seeing it already in, in semi trailers and, and semi trucks the the drive, the drive, the, the actual functioning of, of the tracker trailer is done automatically through algorithms and, and AI or whatever you want to call it, but there's still somebody in the cab, right? And so that still keeps safe. And, and so I think eventually those people in the cab or in the car will be phased out and you're just comfortable with it because there's, there's just much data that shows that it's safe and so on and so forth. It's like planes, right? It's plane travel is technically the safest, although the unfortunate headlines this week, again, middle of March, we're talking about the <laughs> Boeing max eight, technically not necessarily the safest. And so it's been grounded, but, um, I just think that it's continued to adapt. So I'm really excited about first and foremost, uh, automation of equipment. I think that, I think it's fascinating. Again, it's more, maybe it's more personal, like geekiness or nerdiness associated with the movie interstellar and, and the physics associated with it. Um, I think the second, uh, uh, being a more profit or ROI driven farmer because of all the different data points that we're going to be able to collect. And basically here's the recipe to grow your crop. And now that conditions have changed so much, this is what you should be doing instead of this. Um, I think that's, that's probably the second thing I'm most excited about. And then, um, I think, I think the, the, the third thing, um, that I'm actually not excited about, but I'm a little bit worried about mm. is the dynamic of community. Um, and you know, you, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit my, my family run a relatively large operation, but the question comes down to is, um, as will these farms get bigger or is the, are the tools that technology is providing going to allow for those smaller operators to still continue to thrive and be profitable and earn a living from what they're doing? Um, my gut says yes, but without proper adoption rates. And again, some of those smaller farmers are, are the, the last persons to adopt to those new technologies um, for whatever reason. The point is that the individual community, your agricultural community, um, your small towns and whatnot, what might happen to them and what are the impacts of that? I mean, you've seen it um, a little bit in, in, in places today where, you know, the, the dilapidation of, of, small farming towns across whether it's Canada or, or the U S and, and, you know, kind of the unemployment rates and whatnot that are there and just general population, it's, it's a negative thing. And, and so. Except for Foam Lake, which is like the number one place to live in the world. It's the best place. And, and I, and, you know, full disclosure, I mean, like I, I've got family members who are you know, Reeve of the RM, they're on town council and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's a constant question of how do we continue to bring people back to our community and or create opportunities in our community. Um, and I think it's every, you know, every small town is asking this question. Um, and you just don't want to put up another hog barn per se, or, or, or another fertilizer, uh, plant or, or, you know, shaft, if you will. Um, so I think it's, 
what, what are some of the, and this is kind of a challenge to any, any farmer who's involved in their local community and, and politics. Um, what are, what are some of the side effects or, or byproducts of some of this agricultural technology that's going to be required? I know for, for sure, one, computer programming skills in terms of fixing equipment and software and whatnot in those rural areas is going to be very, very coveted. Today, it's coveted, right? And so if you're able to, if you're able to send your kid off to school, yeah, in addition to uh, going to the University of Saskatchewan, getting bought, you know, taught by Bill Brown, guy that I know well, you should also be looking at, in addition, again, in addition to your agricultural agronomy studies, look into doing some computer programming classes because that's not going away. Even the, the simplest language typing skills of how to potentially navigate a, a computer system or, or be able to speak that language is going to become so, so, so much more important than it is today. And even you think about from our parents' perspective, right? That didn't even exist 25 years ago, basically. So what is going to exist 25 years from now? If you know that the language of the future is going to be in code, then should you not be able to start to speak some of that language? So those are, those are some of the things that I think about from a, from a small town and, and the future of ag and the excitement, but also, you know, here's what I'm also cautious of. It's a dense subject and I agree. I mean, I've got conflicting feelings, but overall, I mean, I saw when we introduced the 4920 John Deere sprayer in 2005 and that thing sunk and it had issues and, uh, <laughs> and uh, God bless John Deere, by the way. But I mean, it was literally one of these things. Does this make sense to have a really heavy pig of a machine that we're relying 100% on to put our crop protection products on with when it breaks down we are zero productivity i thought i thought at the time and i'd often talk about kitchen tables producers we need small uh machinery that does not compact the ground that uh, is highly scalable to our needs that sprays every individual plant so we don't have to like broadcast um chemicals onto our onto our food as such and uh I would like to see farm equipment go into the realm of Moore's Law, where it gets smaller all the time, and it gets better all the time, and uh, it gets cheaper all the time, and it gets twice as good all the time. And when I started out selling sprayers, I don't know what the reverse, inverse, you know, Moore's Law of that would be, but I mean, I know a brand new forty-seven hundred and two thousand was was two hundred grand, and now they're. 600 grand plus and uh i still think some of the best machinery was made in that 10 series by deer but uh when i look at when i think about sort of the global ag risk concept where they can tell you your cost of production versus mm. across the fence like you can throw a dart in the wall anywhere in saskatchewan and they can tell you um you know where you fit into the percentile of farmers in terms of uh, cost of production and all that I told Terry, you know, don't lease that new John Deere sprayer right now for the next six years and still owe 300,000 bucks on it because you're going to be looking in that time frame, you're going to be looking at something and automated. And he, of course, he didn't listen to me. It's one time I gave him advice on the farm and he didn't listen to me. But um, this year he, he's looking at a dot and next week we're going down to Arizona and we can look at the dot made in Saskatchewan robot. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be bringing down the economies of scale yet, and it, it's still a bigger machine. They're still thinking 150 foot booms and stuff. It's not, you know, made by DGI and and getting cheaper and you know every year and smaller yet. But I think that's a it'll happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, it'll happen. I mean, it's 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 kind of a matter of timing. And indeed, I mean, it's you know when when things become affordable or. The other option is that you're going to see commodity prices go higher and then, you know, equipment prices will 
track that accordingly as they always <laughs> guys have. Will buy more iron you think it's what they they're good at that's for Did sure you see those stats where in the next five or ten years farmers were going to be spending four or five hundred thousand dollars on iron they were going to be buying more land and buying more bins and stuff they're going to borrow another 1.2 million dollars on average or something just crazy numbers i haven't i haven't seen the numbers but i mean i can tell you that the smartest farmers i know are are this point right now um not switching out their equipment or not looking for new equipment um and and basically looking to optimize their current operations they might look at some land if it's you know next door to their other pieces of, of land but um they're looking for optimization right now than uh, further expansion or, or size growth, whether it's, whether it's in the, it's, it's in the shop or it's in the field. Well, in 2013, my last year in John Deere sales, I sold 20 new sprayers and I don't know that there would be 20 new full size sprayers sold in Manitoba in a year now. Yeah. How good a salesman I am. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Two more questions. Cause man, this is epic. Uh, burning up the bandwidth. Um, I'm going to challenge you here, champ. What would be the one thing you would change about capitalism? Hmm, that's a great question. So I consider myself an ethical capitalist. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, it's not like I tithe or anything like that, but I, I think that, um, in a well functioning democratic society, um, not everyone will be able to thrive for whatever reason. I mean, there's, there's, there's personal disabilities. They're just, you know, they're not given the same shot or the same opportunities. Um, you know, this is a, this is not just a, a societal question, but it is actually actual, some places a racial question. Right. Um, and so I think, um, I wish that we would, Probably the first thing is I wish that that financial literacy would become a requirement in schools um, because there's a lot of, I mean, if we're talking about Canada, there's a lot of hardworking people in this country. Um, but man, are we easily spending that money and we're not investing in our future. We're just investing in tomorrow, essentially, just in time kind of attitudes. And that's just, again, associated with the dopamine associated with your, your phone, you get a notification, right? It's just in time gratification. Um, and, and I wish that we, you know, my parents, God bless them. They've been, you know, great in terms of bringing a lot of that. Think about the, you know, five, 10, 15, 30 years from now, uh, paradigm to, to a lot of my thinking. Um, so I wish I probably, I'd probably change that. Um, if you, if you taught, you know, the process to buy a home or purchase land, uh, you know, specific to maybe that community, that sort of financial literacy, uh, to the forefront earlier, how to do your taxes or why this is important or whatnot. Um, you know, what, what is investing and in, in the dynamic that goes associated with it? Um, like I, I think that, um, would be a lot better off as a as general because people know, okay, spending versus saving and what are the benefits and, and dangers of both. Um, cause there are, there are dangers to saving in some respects, right. depending on where you're saving or investing. Right. Um, so as well. but that's also a component of, of the, the government situation. But, For sure. um, I think, I think, uh, well, it's an easy, it's also an easy point of, you know, this is why you should not go towards that, 
that socialist realm. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at politics, the, the, where, where at the either end of the spectrum, the extreme socialism actually starts to meet with extreme capitalism, um, in terms of like a circle and like, here are the, here's socialism in the middle, here's capitalism in the middle. And, and if you get to like very intense socialism and very intense capitalism, because the capitalism is so great, there's actually only so many few players, uh, and they actually take over. And so they actually basically run a socialist environment, even though it's categorized as capitalist. The Illuminati um, basically. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> how many secret societies are you part of again? Exactly. Brennan. I mean, I can mention that I went to Yale and that's right. Yeah. I mean, I know some people who are in it and yeah. some, it's, it's, it's an interesting organization you know, it's cloaked in secrecy, but, um, I'm starting a club like I that, mean, by the way. Oh, I, I guess it's not that secret anymore, but there's power in that. There's such power in that, you know, people love that stuff. Well, it's, it's really, I mean, if you break it down, it's a component of networks, right? Who are, who's your network, right? And if your network are influencers and people that help dictate uh, behaviors or can influence behaviors, then yeah, I mean, you can easily put something together. So it's, it's coming down to your network, really, in my opinion. Okay, but, so um, I do, I, now I have two more. Oh, okay. Okay, so, and uh, they're kind of similar, but I was going to ask you and I forgot what your take take on Trump is, but yeah, give us your... Give us your thoughts on Trump. And if you'd like, tell me what you think of Trump 2020. Yeah. So it's a great, and, and actually as we speak, uh, Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke came out and said he's, he's running for president. Um, the democratic nomination list is going to be absurd. It's crazy. Um, and, and to be, to what be honest, it's, it, man. You know, you know what's going to happen. This is exactly what's going to happen because it's so it's become so polarized. Yeah. There are so many people who are going to become disenfranchised or disinterested in the democratic values or party platform that's going to be promoted that they're not going to vote for the Democrats and they may not vote at all. They might vote for the independent, which is in Trump's favor because you know the exact same people who voted for Trump in 2016 are going to vote for him again in 2020, which just increases his odds of winning the presidency. He's going to do it again. So won't he? I, I like it, where I'm sitting today, unless the democratic party pulls back from, you know, some of the intensity of, of their, their agenda, yeah. I mean, again, uh, you know, AOC and Elizabeth Warren and some of the, 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 the rhetoric that they're putting out there is just over the top. Um, but this is, this is, I mean, if I, if I think about it, you know, if you look at the history of countries. They only last somewhere between 80 to 110 years as a world power before then they start to, it's too, it's, it's become too big and it starts to crumble. You know, we start, we start with Spain kind of the 1700s into the 1800s. And then, and then you have, you have, uh, before that it was technically France. And after that, after the Spaniards, it was the British environment. And then basically kind of sometime between, you know, the first and second world war and thereafter the U S become the power. And so, you know, the reality is that because the environment has become so polarizing, um, you know, the, the U.S. might be losing its power. And indeed, China or India is probably the next player that's going to become the, the de facto kind of number one leader uh, of, of power. And I think I don't think it's going to happen in the next you know, two to ten years, probably. But, you know, once uh, I'm into my parents' age, it's not going to be the U.S. really in charge anymore. But coming back to the short term thinking. Um, yeah, I, I think that the polarization of politics in 
in the U.S. and even in Canada, for that matter, um, we don't know how to talk to each other without just being so entrenched in our positions. And we, you know, and you could argue maybe it's technology. We don't know how to interact with one another without a screen in front of us that we cannot be able to figure out a compromise mm. um, and figure out the middle. If you, if you think about it, though, there's a great piece actually in the New York Times uh, this past weekend, and, and specifically today's March 14th, so March 10th, I think it was published, about how um, we, we really actually all want the same things. We all want healthcare. We all want the ability to provide for our families all these other things. Just the mechanism and how that's done, you know, we've, we've been very, uh, we've become very polarized and, and you know, it's become a world of he who shouts or she who shouts the loudest is going to be heard the most and thus that's the way it's going to go. I, I think it's really interesting this whole uh, thing about the decline of, of the empire, so to speak, of America. But I want to recommend uh, a book called The Absent Superpower and the Shale Revolution. And just in summary, in the last 10 years, and especially in the last sort of two, three, four, five years, Americans have a very unique uh, geological formation there in the shale play, and they've been able to extract it at such an increasing rate. They can actually uh, increase on a cost uh, per barrel basis with their Saudis, Saudi Arabians with, with the shale play. It's, they're getting so good at it. And so geopolitically, what that means for the, for the entire world is that America doesn't really need anybody anymore. And I wasn't sure why Trump was acting the way he was. But the reality is, I mean, after World War II, they needed to police the world, keep the energy flowing. They had, you know, the hammer basically on everybody to make everybody play nice in essence. And of course, there's a lot of factors there. But now they're energy independent in a way like being an island geographically, they don't have these big weird borders to defend, although Mexico is a crisis according to Trump. But uh, they're not like all these European countries and these other countries that are all kind of shoved in a corner essentially with these weird borders to fight it out uh, without the shale play. It's essentially saying America is only going to gain steam like pending any sort of self-implosion from you know overindulgence on reality TV and Ben and Jerry's. Uh, America is going to like, not run the world anymore, but be the one sort of safe haven given that all these other, no other countries like Canada, there's maybe four other shale play countries, uh, Canada, Argentina, and a couple others. Uh, the rest are going to be dependent on all these like crazy sources of oil where, yeah, you really want to be doing business with these people. I don't know. I don't think so. It's, it's probably good that we don't have to, but um, it's incredible because it's actually so bullish and so optimistic on on the U.S. and, and but the rest of the world sort of going to have to fight it out without that uh, the police, so to speak, or the the superpower. You got to read that book because I was always thinking, oh, Russia and China. But when they talk about the demographics, when they talk about the energy play, when they talk about America stepping back, it's like whoa. And then I was doubly glad to fly back from Jamaica along the eastern seaboard, see all those twinkling lights, and go, thank God I live in. <laughs> civilization brother i mean the, the ironic thing is that you know we also live in a country here in canada where calling a spade a spade we produce a heck of a lot of energy mm -hmm. yet we're not necessarily self-sufficient right why is that so i think yeah. i mean it, there's there's nothing i think i think being self-sufficient is a very strong case i mean you know, truthfully, it used to be that if you had a strong agricultural industry or economy, that it was the backbone for, for any successful um, national economy or country to thrive, right? 
and arguably today it's now if you have a strong energy um, uh, capacity, that is what now allows you to thrive. So it's interesting how that's changed a little bit. That, and that's not to say that you know in the emerging markets, places like Africa and Asia, if you you know they're still looking for that strong agricultural backbone, and and I think it's coming again. As te- technology and whatnot is helping, um, and the introduction of of, of the internet to some of these far reaching corner corners of the earth, uh, via the likes of Google's project loon and some other tools. Um, you know, it's only going to advance the, the use of technology or the access to information in those countries. But, um, indeed in, in to become a first world country, you almost to have to have that agricultural sustainable agricultural economy to become the next level player. Um, you almost have to have that self-sustainable energy policy. Yeah, to your point about China there, um, I was just reading in the Western Seducer that uh, they've basically mandated by 2025 that their main staples of agriculture, well, whatever they got there, rice and corn or whatever they produce, probably know a lot better than I, obviously, uh, will be able to be, uh, the major functions of, of, of growing them will be able to be uh, performed by automated units. Um, yeah, probably going to happen. I mean, that's the get- six years. It's wild. It's not, it's, it's closer than we think basically. Well, and when it comes, you know, that curve, like that, that power curve, it was sort of disturbing because, uh, yeah, anyways. Um, so last question, um, what would you like to make a prediction on that in May would just resonate and just increase your standing in the, uh, global prediction of the agricultural community? Um, okay. It's a great question. <laughs> I'm glad nobody asked it to me cause I would have nothing. Uh, I, I think, I mean, in, you know, in, in being around agriculture my whole life, it's in my blood, my sweat and my tears inherently. Um, and I do cry as much oh. as this looks like a stone face. I am a, I'm a big teddy Can bear. Can you produce inside. a tear for us now just for conjecture purposes? <clears throat> it takes me a few seconds, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, I probably could if I really put my mind to it, but you're laughing too much. But do you I, think about I, I, your kitten that died on the farm when you were seven? It's ironic because my girlfriend, she's obsessed with dogs. I'm like, eh, I'm not as emotionally obsessed attached. with cats, man. Well, touche. Uh, let's not go into that, that world. But <laughs> I, I think, I think that you know the interesting thing that I've discovered is that agriculture is not about widgets of production, or it's not about um, necessarily always profitability. And in, in essence, the industry is actually about relationships and leveraging those relationships to be better, or or the provide the opportunity to be better. And and so really. At its essence, I think agriculture is, is, is this really big social network where if you can introduce me to this new method, you know, mild soul or, or how to manage uh, club root effectively and whatnot, you know, that information is disseminated um, within relationships. It's trusted within relationships. In no other industry does information get passed along through trust circles like agriculture. Nowhere else. Like I literally look for this. And so, you know, as we've been evolving here at FarmLead and growing and, you know, we've obviously, you know, grown to a pretty significant size and company and whatnot. Um, we think that this component of leveraging one net 
one's network, whether to gain access to information about commodity prices or, or crop input prices or information, things like crowdsourcing information. Why am, why am I individually sourcing or sifting through the Western solution? So eloquently put it. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that's really good. I've never heard that it. is old um, as the hills, brother. I, I've never heard it su- suggest that way. Um, the, the, I saw you the, smile. The point, I'm like, well, he gave me like a really good reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's good. You know, the the point though is that if you if you're able to kind of democratize the sourcing of this information, um, again, like if, if if thirty people in my network were to read one article in the producer. Why should I go try to have to sift through 20 pages before I think, yes, this is the article that I want to read, right? And so it's, it's, it's the same thing on, on you know, cash grain trade. If, if the conversation that I'm having with you as maybe a, a buyer of mine is the exact same that you're going to have with any of your other producers, then why are we having these linear conversations when it's the exact same information that's being sought and or delivered? And so um, you know, my, my prediction is that um, you know, we specifically have a product that's really meant to act as more of a social a leverage of your your network, both professional and personal, to distribute and again request or or seek information more readily. And and I think not only you know come May you're going to see this, but uh, I think come uh, over the next couple of years, it's, it's you know that that um, veil of expertise within your own trusted network is going to continue to be doubled down on, so to speak, a, a Moore's law. If I'm being more generally though, um, I think by this time in May, when you see the podcast, you're actually going to see grain prices a lot better than they are. And that's, that's statistically, that's a statistically significant answer because it happens like 95 years out of a hundred that this time, this time, you know, in May and June, you always see grain prices start to pick up. So you can you can timestamp me on that for sure. Um, the other one might be a little bit of a longer prediction. Dodge dealerships across Western Canada are celebrating. Um, really, really, really good job today, Brennan. Alyssa, what did you learn? What did you learn? Hit the space bar and tell us something. What did you learn? I learned that I have a lot to learn. <laughs> Which is a good thing. It's a good thing. Like it just, just, you know, it, it's, it's easy to be paralyzed by the, the, you know, intensity of how much is out there, but pick one, start somewhere, right? It's like, it's like, it's like your, your new year's resolution. Maybe you're off the track a little bit. Why not get him back? Today's a great opportunity to start it up. again. Pick one. And I love that conversation from earlier about, you know, just choosing, learn something every day or pick up a book every week. Cause you know, you can sit and watch TV or be on your phone or do whatever. And you're, you're complacent for the moment, but you're not going anywhere. You're kind of stagnant. So I, I need to learn more. <laughs> you know, you know that, it's interesting you say that because I, uh, I still skate and whatnot. I went away for, for, for a, a skate with a couple of the boys the other night this week. And uh, I came back and my girlfriend was watching The Bachelor. I'm like, why are you watching this? Like, it's, it's, it's mind numbing. Like you could be reading your book that you're doing full disclosure. Uh, uh, and, and this is something that I don't readily share, but now it'll be very popular. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my college hockey teammates put in an application for me to the bachelorette. No way. And I, and I made, Oh, um, oh you are you there? there. Sorry. Oh yeah. You're here. Okay. Go ahead. 
Yeah, somebody called me. Sorry. So they put an application for me into the bachelorette. This would have been almost a decade ago now. Maybe with like 10. I was, I made, I made, I made the top 40. And, and uh, the only reason it didn't go further than that is because I couldn't, it was in the middle of the hockey season that they were trying to do their taping. And they're like, can you come to LA and end of January? I'm like, no, it's in the middle of my season. It's not going to happen. So anyways, that's, that's my, uh, that's my claim to fame around you know, the you're supposed to have sex during the playoffs. Are you? No comment. <laughs> Listen, man, like I think you'd be a great bachelorette. I already have a, I'm not, I'm no longer a bachelor though. Put that way. Right. Right, it would truly Common. be it would be truly be an, a feat of method acting on your part at this point. Probably could do it, but just like I I'd probably I probably lose I probably lose the real relationship that I had. <laughs> that would be a great twist at the end of the season. It's like I actually have a girlfriend. Thanks, though. It's probably happened. <laughs> I don't watch it, so I don't know. Because I mean, I seen the other day on the internet. It's like. I forget what it was, but you won't believe this like bachelorette, bachelorette shocking twist or whatever. And I was like, oh, oh, like, don't click, don't click on it. Like, like you say, like, this is not a good use of my brain, but I'd still argue there's certain activities that, yeah, they're absolutely uh, have no sort of intrinsic social value. Um, but I need some of these things to unwind. It's not particularly the bachelorette. Like my, my recent thing is like GTA five, but I was in, uh, I was in, uh, the gun range practice mode of uh, GTA five last night, thinking about my trip for the last two days to Calgary, some major things happened in the company. I was just like, I need this time. I need to be in this like virtual gun range right now, just shooting this gun so I can like process my life and my company. And, uh, but yeah. that's me with movies. It's white noise. Oh, what's your favorite movie of all time or what's your, well, I already mentioned Dr. Shivago, but if we really get into the list, um, I love, um, you know, I've always loved uh, Legends of the Falls. Uh, Top Gun's a great one. It's classics. <laughs> Step Brothers, because my my name, Brennan, is a character in the, in the movie. And it's also Will Ferrell. He's hilarious. Um, I uh, love, love, love for the love of the game with Kevin Costner. Um, just being, being a former professional athlete, you know, it's something that you can easily empathize with. Um, and I, I do have just generally speaking a man crush on Kevin Costner. And so um anything he's in, I tend to Waterworld to watch. You a Waterworld? Uh, not so much Waterworld, but like Tim Cup <laughs> dances with wolves, right? Like he's just he's a, I think he's a great actor. I also I'm also a big fan of Daniel Day Lewis and so Legends or not Legends of the Falls, um um There is Last blood. of the Mo Matt Last of the Mohicans is easily one of my favorite movies. What about There is um, Blood? That that's a very interesting one, and indeed comes back to the whole energy component, right? Right. Um, but uh, I didn't like that one as much and as gangs in New York. I mean, you got Leo in there, so that means that you can invite your girlfriend to join you for that movie, and it's environmentally friendly because Leo is like a low impact environmentalist guy. They've they've done the studies. Ugh. Right off the yacht. Right off the yacht. It, it's you know. It's really funny because it's all context and this is what drives me crazy about environmentalists. Um, but there's actually actually traveling like to like on an all inclusive resort. Uh, all these people that travel have a bigger, bigger, uh, uh, 
green GHG impact, greenhouse gas impact than than most of the cows in the world. It takes a lot of fossil fuel to save the environment. Let's say, let's put that like so that we can have the ability to have rare earth minerals inside a phone in Starbucks that we can tweet about. It takes quite a bit of infrastructure in terms of uh, food and energy. I would, I would love for everyone. It should almost, it should almost be mandatory. Maybe this is what we change about capitalism. There should be a required trip in high school or elementary school or something to go to a place like Africa or Central America, just to remind you and and give you perspective of how how much we have and and there's so much we should be grateful for and it just passes us by like every single day and so it's um you know, I think um, again recency bias right you got you got your newest phone you got your newest Apple TV whatever it might be and take those things away and it's like stop and smell the air a little bit. I had to talk myself out of a small moment of joy. I've just got this itch to buy like a bigger iPad or a Kindle or some other screen. I'm like, you know, that's only the application is only going to last for like 20 minutes. Really? I'm, I'm in the TV buying mode. Right Are now. You? Like I, I, I've had my TV. It's like an LG 48 inch or something like that. I've had it for over a decade. Wow. Um, which in the age of TV seems like a really long time. So, I'm thinking I deserve to upgrade and uh, because I, I just bought a house. So I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe making, maybe making a switch, but my, my theory, again, it's kind of Moore's law. It's like these prices come down with TVs with every new technology. I'm like, maybe I should just wait two years and the price of what I'm looking at is going to be 50% better. And that by that time, I'll know exactly what I want. Anyway. This is the weird first world conundrums that for some reason just create so much anxiety. Uh, Terry went to Ethiopia and never forget what he said. Um, they really don't have like a concept or a word. I mean, I don't want to like over, like overstate this. Uh, don't let me overstate this, but they don't have the same like word or concept for depression or anxiety in their country, but they are quite busy, like on a daily basis, just doing the essential functions to prepare for the next meal. Yeah. They, they're trying to live. That's what they're focused on. We have a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, stories in our head that create a lot of, a lot of issues. And it sounds like you've got this issue with the television. So I just want to wish you luck with that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe in season two, we'll find out if what you bought for TV, if you bought a TV. Or in a breakfast brief that you read. <laughs> I was, my big thing with this podcast was like, I got to get a hold of Brennan a month ahead and I got to get a, a month of his breakfast briefs. You should send it to me anyways, if you can. Dan at abahardyaxsolutions.ca. But uh, I was like, I got to prepare. And I, oh man, we, like if I prepared, we'd probably be talking for six hours. So um, you should leave. Probably. Yeah. You should leave us off, man. It's been an awesome thing though. Like the cool thing about this podcast is whenever we have got this conversation, I seen you in San Francisco a year ago. Now I was thinking about that. I'm going next week. Are you going next week? I'm not, I'm not. And it was just, it was funny. I was thinking about that last year we we went and it was our first advisory board meeting. And um, frankly, I came in there with my traditional sham. Wow. You know, beating my chest like Kong and and advisors basically told me a bunch of things I didn't want to hear and things that I didn't want to do. And I was quite depressed in a hotel room in San Francisco at this, uh, this uh, world, world agritech investment summit. I found it incredibly overwhelming at the time. I was like, what do I do with this? And uh, frankly, I think Terry is a better lead for that kind of thing. Cause he, him as a farmer, farmer, he can start to sort some of that startup techie talk out 
and figure out, you know, this might be good. And I, I know we want new things for Eberhard Egg, but like having a little alarm go off on my iPhone when the sheep goes outside of the fence or something from some guy that invented it from Israel, it's great. But like, I'm just like, okay, I just need to go home and sell some more biosol. I'm good. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God. But it's a cool, it's a cool show, but it was expensive and long. And I don't know. What, what do you get out of it? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a networking opponent. You get to connect face to face with a lot of people who either, you know, have been on your radar for the last year and you're trying to maybe do something with them, um, to talk about, you know, what you guys have been able to accomplish and what's going forward, uh, what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. You were speaking Um, last year, were you not? Yeah, exactly. I talked about, um, just kind of grain trade in the value chain in general. Um, if you can speak so, at events, that's just such tremendous value. That's amazing. Yeah. So no, it was, uh, it was great. And so, yeah, I mean, we've gone pretty much every year for like the last five years and, and then I mean, we have some investors down there and then I have some, some of my personal network and, and, uh, I'm actually one of, one of the members of my, my fellowship, uh, well, two of them, one is the CEO of Eventbrite and the other one is the CEO of, and founder of Credit Karma. And, and so I'm following each around each of them around for like half a day before the, uh, the summit and just hanging out with them and just trying to, you know, seeing how Julia, she's the, the CEO and she founded Eventbrite with her husband, Kevin, um, and you know, so they, how they operate, you know, their teams and leadership styles and whatnot. And same thing with Ken and like how they, how they operate things and it's more important what's pressing and dealing with certain things. So again, always, always trying to learn. Oh, it's huge. Um, it was just kind of funny for me personally at the time I was a little bit overwhelmed, uh, after the advisory board meeting and I had a bunch of, um, big stuff for sales wise going on at home. And then I was trying to wrap my head around everything at that summit. And I get, I get to the point where I'm so saturated with new ideas, probably like Alyssa's head is right now. Like you're so saturated with new ideas. You're just exhausted. And I was just like, Oh man, it was, uh, but anyways, I shouldn't poo poo on it. It's a great show. Well organized. I mean, just blows your mind what's happening in agriculture just on a whole different level i mean those those people are very far from the glacial till of langeberg saskatchewan but my brother's doing a lot of that stuff on the farm so it's it's happening but it's um the thing is i will say this maybe we can end here uh, I, got, I gotta go on with that yeah, day here uh, uh the 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 interesting thing is the lack of farmer attendance at right? these ag tech events there's and no farmers there and, and like, it, it's like me, you and your brother who are able to literally discern, okay, that's useless. And, and I mean, I, I guess that's kind of one of the benefits of being, you know, from, uh, you know, farming background, still involved in the farm to, to a certain extent. Um, you know, Hey, I'm a great grain cart driver. And again, I'm going to lose my job donation, but, um, the point, <laughs> Sorry is, about that. point is, point is that, uh, you know, it, it's just, there's just this, this almost discrepancy, like what's, what's actually applicable to this is what everyone's trying to, to, you know, solve for. Um, so I I wish that, you know, some of the, these events would bring in more farmers, but TBD, we'll see. Give me your pitch again on who you are and what you do and how people can connect with you and what you can help them with. Yeah. So I'm Brennan Turner. I'm the CEO and co-founder of FarmLead, North America's grain marketplace. Our mission is to make cash grain trade easy um, all buyers, all sellers in one convenient location, showcase what you're looking to sell specifics around it on the flip side. If you're a buyer, post your bid and, uh, let your network or counterparties come to you and find a better grain deal. Man, we have like a mission statement like that somewhere, but I can't remember it. I got to work on that. I just, uh, 
yeah, you spend a couple of days whiteboarding that stuff and you're, you're, but that's really good. Thanks for having me. You Dad. did a great job, Brennan. Amazing conversation. I can't wait to slice and dice this one for the public. So thanks, man. I appreciate it. And hopefully get to talk again soon. We'll see you around the racetrack. You got it, buddy. Keep Have it. a good one. Thanks so much, Brennan. Thanks for listening to the Growing the Future podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for highlights of the show. Also, full-length videos of the show are available on our website, www.growingthefuturepodcast.ca, and on YouTube. We would very much appreciate if you took the time to visit our sponsor, Aberhart Ag Solutions at aberhartagsolutions.ca where you can find innovative solutions that transform your farm. Yeah.